It is the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast with your host and conductor, Anthony Smith. What do we have on tap? Well, only way to find that out, you have to tune in. You have to grab your ticket, get on board, put your seatbelt on. Most importantly, enjoy the ride. That's right. It is the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. Your host and your conductor, Anthony Smith. And we are getting ready to get this train on the track. So let's get rolling. You're listening to the best of 2022 interview on the A Train Sports Talk Podcast. Welcome into the A Train Sports Talk Podcast. Your host and conductor of the train, Anthony Smith, your favorite host and conductor. Picking up passengers along the way. And I actually have a passenger on train, and I'm I'm thankful that he's trustworthy to trust me with his life in my hand behind the wheel of a locomotive going down a track. <laughs> the young man I'm talking about plays baseball by the name of Michael Flyer, a 2020 graduate of Cumberland High School in Illinois, currently attending Spoon River College in the fall, and playing for the Park City Rangers. Yeah, that's like right here in my neighborhood. So all the way from Illinois to Kansas, playing summer league baseball for the Park City Rangers as part of the Kansas Collegiate League Baseball. Welcome aboard the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast, my guest, Michael Flyer. <laughs> Mike, how you doing? Good, good, good. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Man, I'm, I'm glad to have you on here. Uh, uh, set the narrative here. We met a few weeks ago. I'm actually a part-time security officer. I patrol around and look like I'm working and happened to catch him and his crew coming out of a place called Firebirds. Yes, I can say restaurant name because I'm not affiliated with a radio station. So somebody just got some free plug right there. So, <laughs> but we're talking with young man Michael Flyer, who is the baseball player. And the first thing I want to ask you is, what inspired you to pick up the ball and bat? Oh wow! Um, I mean, truthfully, what inspired me, I have to say, is uh, I have to say, is my dad. You know, my dad played ball when he was younger, and uh, uh, truthfully, I think he let it come naturally to me. I think you know he he put me in t-ball, or my parents put me in t-ball, so to say, and. Uh, you know, I guess they could see my little love for the game. It just caught on ever since then. Absolutely. So I know as growing up as a, as a child, you probably played multiple positions until you got settled in on one position. What's the yeah. best position on the field that you actually like to play? Um, truthfully, I mean, I love being in center field. And that's my home. I feel I feel the most confident. You know, I can see everything. I have the best view of, you know, the swings, what's going on in the infield. But um, when I was younger, I played everything. You know, I was a pitcher when I was younger. I was a catcher. I played third a couple times, first base. 
Um, as I got older, though, I started to I started to zone in on uh, outfield and middle infield, which is what I still currently play. Okay, so in your bio, you went to a school in uh, Illinois, Cumberland High School. Tell me a little bit about your high school playing days and the type of competition that you faced. So where I'm where I come from, you know, what I was raised in is you know very different than you know I would say what what most uh what most college athletes have went through. I went to a very small rural 1A high school. Um, you know, I graduated with 69 kids. There was probably there was probably 20 kids on my baseball team. Um, I was in fact the only starter in my class that played. So I mean, <clears throat> it was just very different. Like it was it was like more or less sandlot ball like we didn't have the best fields you know we didn't have we didn't have the best facilities nothing like that I mean, we were really out there just playing for the love of the game and you know that's something i still hold close to me now and that's what my driving force is to play you know i come from i don't like to say i come from nothing but you know i don't i don't come from you know the most luxurious places okay so you you mentioned something there when you say you play for the love of the game and I'm gonna get back to your earlier playing days but you you kind of struck a chord right there you play for the love of the game so when you're watching a major league baseball game what is your perception when you're watching these games knowing the salaries of, of some of these players and especially in major league baseball all of the professional sports major league baseball doesn't have a salary cap so by you being one of the exceptions playing for the love of the game how do you view major league baseball um i kind of i kind of catch on the little things like uh you know guys guys running out fly balls you know hustling down down and back to the baselines you know the way they carry themselves you know if they show show a little bit too much of emotion you know, i mean guys are getting paid you know millions and millions of dollars just to just to strike out you know if you look at you look at some of those salaries, like Bryce Harper. He's got a three hundred fifty million dollar contract he's on, and I don't even know if it's, I don't even know if it's that. It might be more, but you know, you're getting paid to you're getting paid to strike out or take pitches. Like, you know, everyone everyone plays for you know their own reason, but you can you can really tell the guys that play because they love the game of baseball, and you can see it on TV. You know, you can see them running it out. You can see the passion, the drive they have for it, and that's what I that's what I catch on to. I don't like. I'm not really a huge fan of, you know, those big league guys popping out and, you know, trotting the first base or jogging the first on the ground. That's that's not the way I like to play. And, and that was one of the things that really caught the ire of baseball fans. Tony La Russa. And he said to preserve guys from being injured, if you know that you're not going to beat the throw to first base, just jog it out and don't go all out. And that turns some people wrong. I mean, because I know you, you play for the love of the game. So even if you think that you're not going to make it, chances are run down that first base line, you're going to give it your all until the umpire gives the right decision, whether you're out or whether you're safe, correct? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I understand that to an extent. You know, if you hit a, you hit a ground ball right back to the pitcher and he has it in his hand before you can even get out of the box, like, I get that. But, you know, it's – I've. I had high school coaches and uh, I'll give him a shout out here, Mark Jackley. You know, he instilled in me something very, very early when he started coaching me is, you know, to run that ball out, hustle, you know, show that you want to play, show that, you know, you're, you're trying to get down that line because in the end, 
you know, you hit a ground ball to the left side or right side, you know, and you're hustling down the line, the infielders see that, right? And, you know, they're going to have to hustle their their mechanics, hustle their footwork, and, you know, that gives a chance of making a bad throw. And on top of that, as a high school player or a college player trying to get recruited going to the next level, you never know who's watching. And, you right. know, there's people there's people timing, you know, on stopwatches, you're, you're timing out or from home to first. Like, <clears throat> you know, absolutely. That, that's just – that's just a big thing for me. And I, I tell all my teammates that on, no matter where I am, you know, you know, I don't really care if it's a fly ball to the outfield or if it's a, you know, roll over to the left side of the field. And I want to see you hustle down the line. I want to see you that you're giving me hundred percent because I'm out here giving my hundred percent. You know, that's what I expect from the rest of my guys out here too. And one key aspect, I've heard coaches say this, like if they have a star player on their team, the coaches say, I have to be able to coach you up. Because if I can coach you up, you being the star player and senior, then that will resonate down to the younger players because then they'll say, okay, he's the star player. The coach is coaching him, so it it rubs off eventually. Am I correct? Yeah, it's it's contagious. Energy is contagious on the baseball field, you know. If one guy has their head down and one guy's, you know, getting down on themselves, you know, it's contagious. That falls into the next guy and then, you know, so on and so on. Absolutely. So we transition from – as you said, basically said, it was a tiny little school in Illinois, and you move on to your college playing days at Spoon College. What's that experience like? Because I know there's a transition between high school and college, and give me a briefing on Spoon River College, because I haven't heard of that school before. Where are they located at? Right, so Spoon River College is located in uh... I believe Northwest Illinois. It's about it's about two and a half hours south of uh, Chicago, and it's uh, it's very close to Western Illinois. If you ever heard of that, but um, yeah, Spoon River's a it's a little bit of a new organization. They were uh, they're not a very big, well known sports school. They're uh, they're a big Votech school, you know, diesel mechanic kind of school. But uh, they've just not, they've recently in the past past decade or so have uh, opened back up to their sports. And Spoon is also another like small rural area too, so. Um, you know, it's not a very populated area. I think the town only has like 15,000, but, you know, for me going into that, that was, that was a step up, you know, in the, in the culture and, you know, uh, college life for me, because you know, there's more people there, not, you know, it's still a small school, but it was bigger than what I've come from. And it's, you know, it was still a little bit of a transition period. I had to, had to get used to being around people. I didn't know, you know, people from different cultures, different ethnicities and, uh, that was just, I mean, it wasn't a, a hard task for me, but it was different. All right. So now we don't went from Cumberland High School, Spoon River College, playing Park City Rangers, which yes, basically sir. that leads into the NBC World Series. Mm-hmm. So from tiny spots in Illinois to come to Park City. How were you noticed by them? You said you said how did I notice? How how were how were you noticed by them? How they how oh. they notice you? So I was contacted by uh by uh, the the Midwest Moose, which is another team in the conference, and uh, me and my me and my uh, Logan at the time. You met him while right. Uh, we were both contacted by the league. Um, and I believe they with videos and. 
Originally, I was supposed to play for the Moos, but uh, uh, the Rock, many people, one time, like me and got over to Park City. And you know, this, this is really a blessing to have because, you know, really awesome people here. Okay. You, you, one, one moment. Oh, I hate to interrupt. You're kind of cutting in and out of there. Are you in a, like a dead spot right there? Okay. Or is that a Bluetooth that's kind of going in and out? Yeah, it could be. Hold on, let me take you off. Take off the car speaker here. Oh, okay. Can you hear me a little better now? Yeah, there we go, because it was kind of cutting in and out. I want to make sure we get everything so we can kind of go back to beginning how you got noticed by the Park City Rangers. <laughs> so, yeah, I have, a, I have a, a little highlight account on Twitter where I post all my, all my baseball stuff. And I believe the, our uh, our league director, Sheldon, he just strolled upon me there and uh, found me and my teammate from college and, you know, just gave us a shout. Said, hey, you know, we think you're a talented player. We want want you to come play in the league. And, you know, I'm, I'm never a person to say no to, you know, come and compete. So I just packed up my bags. I was home for like two weeks. Came to my parents about it. And I was like, you know, I've been <laughs> still wanting to play right now. You know, I could take the summer off of work, but I'm getting a little older now, and it's uh, it's really become, you know, vital to, you know, put some hard work and dedication into your craft. And I knew there's still more place for work in my game, so I just took it upon myself and went. And like I said, I think it was a blessing in disguise because, like I said earlier, I was supposed to play for the Midwest Moves, but they had a little roster mishap, and we got transferred over to the Park City. And I've met some really, really amazing people here. Mm-hmm. You know, my coach is a really fun character. I actually live with him. Um, and I have teammates from everywhere. You know, I'm learning. I'm learning a little bit of Spanish. You know, I got I got teammates from the Dominican. Uh, I got I got four or five teammates from Puerto Rico, Venezuela, uh, a couple of kids from Australia, Panama, Cuba. I mean, I've met some just really cool kids. You know, and it's just, it's crazy to see everyone's, you know, love for the game from around the world come all into one team. And I love the energy. I love the passion that my guys have. And, you know, it just, it gets a lot of fun to play behind the guys I'm with. Now, the one thing I know about this time of year, especially the, the Kansas Summer League and the teams, how they're constructed, you may have guys on the team that play for rival colleges. And then at the same time, you may have guys on one team versus the other team that actually played with each other at the same college, but now they are opponents. Mm-hmm. Is there any amount of trash talking and good fun that's going on between those? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's to me, I view that as part of the game. You know, if people are going to play with their heart. I play with my heart every single time I go out there, you know, and people, a lot, a lot of coaches like to say, you know, don't show any emotion, you know, be a straight face, but. You know, I'm I'm truthfully I'm not that type of player. If I if I see something I don't like, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell I'm gonna tell somebody about it. You know, I'm gonna let them know. And you know, there's definitely there's definitely guys playing with their hearts out here. Like, there's no doubt about that. I mean, I think <laughs> I think we've cleared the benches, you know, three or four times this season. You know, we haven't gotten any fights. Like, no one's been no one's been like that because you know that's not really something people like to put in the part of the game. But yeah, absolutely. There's 
there's trash talking going around. You know, people are trying to get in your head. You know, that's just part of the game. Part of the game. And what's the one thing that you learn from playing in this particular setting as opposed to playing, say, in your high school days or your college days? Because the teams are constructed differently. You got people from all types of uh, backgrounds. You got coaches that you've never played for before. And you're doing a lot of things crammed up in a short amount of time. What's one of the things that you take from the experience of playing in Kansas Summer League Baseball? That's a good question. I actually uh, just had a conversation with a couple of my teammates the other night about this when we were at the facility. Um, so there's really like three big things that I put, picked up on, you know, one, one, one of the biggest one is, is energy. You know, energy is like everything, you know, you can't come into the ballpark with your head down knowing you're going to lose something like that. You know, you gotta, you gotta come in every day with that, with that dog mentality, that mindset that you want to win. You know, you just have to have that if you, if you want to you know, come out victorious in the day. Um, the second one, the second one I have to say is uh, chemistry. You know, I've always kind of been a big person of, you know, knowing the people on your team and, you know, making, having good relationships with them. And, you know, the biggest thing about chemistry with that is when I go out in the field, like I want to, I want to know what's going to happen. I want to, I want to expect, you know, my guys to do well, my guys to fight for me, you know, my guys to throw strikes, you know, that type of thing. And, uh, Thirdly, I'd have to say communication. This is something that uh, we've kind of realized as you get older and as you get into the bigger stages of baseball, you know, you're going to run into people that, you know, don't speak any English. And, um, you know, as an outfielder, I have, you know, on the regular day, I'll have my left fielder that's Australian. No, I'm sorry, my left fielder that's, uh, uh, what he's Puerto Rican, and then my right fielder is Dominican. So, and I don't know how much you know about Puerto, the differences between uh, Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico, but there's a little bit of a, a language difference. You know, they don't speak the same type of Spanish. Okay. So if I, if there's a fly ball to my, to my left fielder, you know, I have to be, I have to be saying some type of Spanish to him. I have to say, you know, his name says, it's like, I'd be like, Jesus, blah, 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 blah. And then on the, on the other side of it, my, my Puerto Rican outfielder, he doesn't speak any English at all. He doesn't, doesn't comprehend a lot of English. So. For the games, we have to be. We have to be. I got to get my my other teammate Jose, which is bilingual. He speaks, he speaks both. I got to be talking to him, explaining to him what we need to be doing, who we're going to shift on. You know, it's just it's just a big thing. Like you got to be able to talk. Like, being able to, you know, converse with your left fielder that doesn't speak any English is like so much bigger than what you realize it is. You know, playing in high school, college, where everyone speaks English. You know? All right, then. Well, I want to say I thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule. I know you're still putting in a lot of work, and uh, we will definitely do this again. As a matter of fact, this was such a good interview. I'm going to put the ball in your court. Anytime you want to come aboard the A-Train Sports Talk podcast, all you have to do is just call me or hit me with a message and say, what's your time schedule looking like? And I will make the time. So I want to thank you once again. Uh, we want to thank Michael Flyer, Park City Ranger. Yes, we're claiming him now as a Park City Ranger in the state of Kansas for being on the A-Train Sports Talk podcast. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. And I want to thank you again for having me. You know, this is a great opportunity for me to tell my story. My family and friends are going to love this. Absolutely. You know, I just want to thank you again. This is awesome.
and thank you once again for being on board. We will get back with you again. Once again, Michael Flyer, Park City Ranger. All right. I will be back. Well, actually, I just wrapped up the last segment of my podcast with a great guest, baseball player, playing Kansas Summer League Baseball with the Park City Rangers, and you could just deem that segment the player spotlight. That's right. Player spotlight. The inaugural player spotlight. See how those things happen like that? Anyway, I have enjoyed myself. Hope you have enjoyed riding along on the train. We will be back again sometime next week. We have a lot going on, but trust me, we will be back with you. And as I always say, take care of yourself. And each other. It is the A Train Sports Talk Podcast, your host and conductor, Anthony Smith, saying enjoy the weekend, be blessed. If you would like to have your ad ran on the A-Train Sports Talk podcast, simply reach out to me at a.trainsportstalk at gmail.com or at 316-553-2010. Or if you would like to sponsor a segment, you can also reach me at a.trainsportstalk at gmail.com or 316-553-2010. So let's grow together. It is the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast, your host and conductor, Anthony Smith. You're listening to the best of 2022 interview on the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. Welcome to the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. This is your host and conductor, Anthony Smith. Today on tap, we will be doing our point counterpoint. It's going to be done a little bit different, and it's out of respect to one of our guests today. Today, we're going to be looking at what was once a theme around here that said, once a red skin, always a red skin. 
but it's only within heart now as that name has been removed here locally. I want to share an article with you. Wichita Board of Education approves removing name of North High mascot. The Wichita Board of Education approves removing name of North High mascot. In a 6-0 vote, the Wichita Board of Education approved dropping the name Redskins as the North High School mascot during a February 8, 2021 meeting. The BOE agreed with the North High agreed with the North High mascot committee that the name is offensive to Native Americans and is racially and culturally insensitive. The committee will not create a new mascot, but will adhere to BOE policy 1216, which states a school building principal is responsible for the development of school themes, songs, flags, etc. At this time, the North High administration has no plans to create a new mascot. The school will be referred to as Wichita North High School, and the school will continue to use their shield, drum, and feather logo. The school will have a two-year phase-in plan starting in the 2021-22 school year to remove the mascot name on athletic and fine arts uniforms, school apparel, and signs. The committee said this is not about rewriting history or erasing North's past and accomplishments of the North community and alumni. All trophy cases and statues will remain as they are, as well as the Native American artwork on the outside of the school. The committee also recommended the development of a ninth grade advocacy class curriculum that highlights the history of North High and its Native American influence. The curriculum would be developed in conjunction with the WPS Native American program and include hands-on experiences with Native American artifacts. And my first guest that I am going to bring on is known here locally. Uh, you can hear him on a show that airs every Monday through Friday from 2 o'clock to 4 o'clock known as the Bob and Jeff Show. Hello. And my first guest I have on here uh, as I was introducing him, uh, you can hear him every Monday through Friday, along with his dad, and he has his own identity. He is none other than Jeffrey Lutz. <laughs> Jeff, well, welcome aboard the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast, and I just went ahead and rehashed that article of the Board of Education uh, with the removal of the name North High Redskins. And I had a chance to talk with you briefly about that. But today we get to go with my new segment called Point Counterpoint. And I will have my other guest on after you. 
but I want to thank you first for jumping on board and trusting me with your life behind the wheels of a locomotive. Thank you. Sounds great, man. Happy to be here. Right. And once again, let me put that plug in to those of you who are listening to my podcast and you're underwear and you're wondering how can you listen to the Bob and Jeff show? Tune in Mondays through Fridays, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. It's still the same great show. They just don't call it the drive. It's the Bob and Jeff show. You got so, it. So with that being said, you are a North High alum, a North High grad. The first thing I want to ask you before we get to the removal of the name is, what were your feelings when you were actually attending the games, attending the schools, and the same was always like this, once a Redskin, always a Redskin. At that time, back then, did you have the same feelings back then as you do today? I definitely did not. I would have never thought twice about uh, the nickname back then. Uh, there were definitely plenty of uh, chants, like you said, and, and sayings and slogans and quotes that included that nickname. Um, and I certainly was none the wiser to how that could possibly be offensive because we did our best, I felt, or uh, we at least pretended like we were trying to do our best to honor a culture. And I have since uh, come to the realization, which I believe is fact, uh, that that is not a way to honor a culture with a with a mascot i just don't think that's the way to do it okay so as i was reading the article now it did mention that you know all the trophy cases will remain the same uh the artifacts the sculptures that will remain the same as a matter of fact with the ninth grade class they're going to have an advocacy and you know having hands-on native american experience so they're not doing away totally with the native american experience so to speak it's just the name so where is the line drawn between the offensiveness and the Native American experience? That's a good question because I'm not I'm not a Native American, so I can't really answer that question. But I guess it's kind of a, a case by case basis. When you use the color of uh, someone's skin uh, in in the name of a uh, a mascot or a school nickname, I would say that is a far far crossing the line. But you could say, well, what about the Fighting Irish, or what about the Fighting Illini, or the, the Seminoles, or the Braves, or the Chiefs? And I don't really have a good answer to that question. Uh, my team used to be the uh, the Cleveland Indians. Right. Was very happy. Was very happy when they changed their name to the Guardians. Some people refused to accept progress, and that we're moving forward, and that we're judging things based on the time that we live instead of based on the time when that franchise was named back in the 1920s or 30s. And, you know, they felt like they were, quote unquote, honoring the uh, the Native American culture as well with Cleveland Indians. But I think that is one debunked. And uh, two, we've heard from enough uh, Native American people to, to tell us that that is not how they want to be recognized or honored. So uh, I'm going to side with uh, the majority of those folks. Okay. And with that being said, because you mentioned other team nicknames, and it's ironic that you mentioned Seminoles, and they're usually tied with Florida State. And I guess their thing is they're on, I guess they're out there on a Native American type reservation somewhere close by. So the sentiment out there is they have no problem with the name Seminoles and how they go about honoring them. So I guess as it is with race relationships, I guess even with some Native Americans, they're divided on the issue as well, too. But all it takes is just a little bit to be considered the majority, and the majority 
always outrules the minority. Would that be a good assessment? That's fair. And I think, you know, when you don't ever use the word outside of a uh, sports con context, like we have with the Washington football team and the North high athletics, that, that word, um, is not used outside of that. No one calls a native American that word that starts with an R. I don't even want to say it. Um, I don't think it's right to say it. Uh, no one says that about any people They'll, just like no one, uh, call would call you black skin. That would be completely offensive. Um, that would be, that's racist and it's wrong. So again, maybe back in the forties and fifties, I still don't think that it was right then, but it was certainly judged differently and it was perceived differently and it was presented differently as though, you know, this is honoring, uh, these people and that culture. And I just don't think that's the case. You're playing sports, putting, putting a, a, a red face guy with a, a feather and a huge smile when, uh, you know, the majority of those players are white, Dominican, uh, Latin, black, no, really no native American. Uh, how is that honoring a culture when that culture isn't participating in the, the quote unquote honoring? It doesn't make any sense. Absolutely. <clears throat> so, that being said, because now we're looking at a team just like the Washington used to be football team, now commanders, they're going without a name. So I'm pretty sure there's going to be some type of committee to come up with the name because one thing I noticed in their article, they said they will, they're going to still keep the feather logo. So hopefully that doesn't become an issue, but they're going to keep that logo. So what do you think would be a name suited for North High? I don't know. Eagles, if they're going to use a feather, let's go with a bird instead of some kind of cultural appropriation, which it's just, it's just, we, that time has come and gone where we as a society should, uh, should be able to do things like that. And it just gets into this, this conversation that, nobody's really having about like cancel culture who's being canceled when you change the name Indians to guardians, certainly not the, uh, the millions and millions of, uh, I don't know if it's millions, but it's obviously a lot <laughs> of, uh, of native Americans who want no part of that. Uh, certainly the, the, the baseball, anything related to baseball isn't being canceled. Uh, people are still attending the game. I mean, it's just, there's no, there's no canceling there. And I might be arguing against nobody by even, bring that up but it just uh, again it's one of those things that doesn't quite add up we are in the year 2022 yes people may be uh extra sensitive to some things and and uh find some things maybe more offensive now than they would have even five or ten years ago but when things are objectively wrong and they've always been objectively wrong we're just now figuring it out uh there's no better time than now to fix those things so i'm glad we're doing that all right now let me ask you this question because most of the heat that came behind that particular name, let's just call it, as they say, call it Ace of Ace of Spade of Spade. It started with what is now the Washington Washington Commanders. And it didn't just start with Daniel Snyder, and I forgot who the owner was before him, but they were very adamant to the point of arrogancy to no, we will never change this name, no way in, you know what, are we going to do that? So if you think they would have had a different approach and a different attitude and a, as they would say, sit down, come to Jesus meeting, do you think the approach or the, it wouldn't have been quite the backlash had they just had that sit down and 
say, hey, let's talk. Let's have this conversation. Because basically they thumbed their nose up and said, there's no conversation to be had. So if you think they had a different attitude and a mindset and was willing to have a forum with Native American people, you think it would be a whole different ball game. Yeah, I mean, when the decision is made for you, then you really don't get much credit for that uh, because they were starting to lose sponsors and the, the court of public opinion was certainly swaying in the direction of you have to change this name. And it, it definitely wasn't handled that well from uh, the Washington football team's standpoint. I feel like the, the Cleveland baseball team handled it a little bit better, but still that was kind of uh, a decision that was made for them. Although they did solicit a lot of input from the, from the native American community. I believe Cleveland is in Cuyahoga County. So that's obviously uh, a native American name. It's uh, it's something that uh, they feel is important up in Cleveland. But uh, yeah, the nickname just doesn't jive with all that. And again, like I said, there are people that, that are saying, well, what happens when you change the name? Now there's no representation of, uh, of Native American culture in sports nicknames. And now, yeah, exactly. That's exactly what we're going for. No cultural appropriation, no racial representation in sports nicknames. If you want to find ways to honor those people you can take a far less uh, lazy approach i think okay well with that being said now i want to really pick your brain because we still have teams like braves chiefs and we just go ahead and put this in concrete the seminoles i don't think they would be changed because that group of native americans they really support the florida seminoles out there so they got the backing of them but how long do you think it'll be before we start seeing names like the Braves and the Chiefs come under some more scrutiny and to the point where they almost have to be forced to change their name? That's a good question because it seems like now that we've had a couple teams change their name that this isn't necessarily something people are talking about anymore. They feel like, okay, well, those are the, those are the offensive names. So I guess all these other ones aren't that offensive, but the Braves do the tomahawk chop bad. The Chiefs do the tomahawk chop, which is bad. So does it necessarily have to do with the name? I, I mean, the actions of the fans and the name, I guess they all are tied in together. Uh, but it seems like we've, uh, as a society, moved on from changing those names, of changing the Braves and the Chiefs. There doesn't seem to be much of a, a clamoring for that right now. Okay. So let me ask you this, and I'm going to let you go because I know you have some prepping to do. So you said – the North High should be the Eagles since they're sticking with the feather. I, I mean, I just now, made that one up. I mean, I like <laughs> the band, the Eagles. That's the first thing I thought of when you said feather. Uh, so, yeah, there could be a lot of different kinds of uh, names for North High, I would think. So, if by chance, not saying this would happen, if they came up with the name, say, Seminoles, and everybody's on board with it, how would you feel about that? terrible because as I don't believe and I could be wrong I don't think Seminoles uh, are represented in Kansas that again that could be way off base and I might be wrong about that but I don't think that's a Kansas native tribe um, and just to I mean just get away from that altogether just get away from using a race or a tribe of people as your mascot people are not mascots okay well I want to say I do honor and respect your opinions. I even honor and respect the way you want to 
handle this uh segment called point counterpoint because my I, i'm i'm gonna let the listening public know and this is no reflection negatively on jeff but he didn't want to do the two-way deal and that's his that that's how he felt and i respect that and i still want y'all who listen to this podcast tune in from two to four and jeff tell them what the name of the show is it's the bob and jeff show and anthony i i appreciate you bringing that up i'll provide a little bit of context uh it's not that i necessarily didn't want to uh participate at all it's just that i felt like having a debate uh about the issue would lend credibility to the other side of the argument which i don't think really for that particular name now if we were talking chiefs braves there's maybe a debate to be had there but for the particular name we're talking about for north high and the old nickname for the washington football team i just don't think that there's a debate there so i i wouldn't want to uh offer you know credibility to that to that there would be absolutely and like i say i respect that and i'm just glad you came on board today and we will do this again probably during the season, except it'll probably be a different topic altogether. And you're always invited on the train, so anytime you want to come on, just let me know. We will fix a time slot, and you will have that time slot. So once again, my guest on the A-Train Sports Talk podcast, Jeff Lutz. Thank you. Yeah, man. Appreciate it, big fella. Yes, sir. Once again, Jeff Lutz on Point Counterpoint. Coming up next, we will have another radio personnel, so stay tuned. It is the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast, your host and your conductor, Anthony Smith. Be right back. It is the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. You're a host and conductor of the train, Anthony Smith, and today we are picking up passengers. The segment of the show, Point, Counterpoint, where we have two different opinions on an issue. Back in February 2021, there was a vote to remove the name Redskins. Has it divided a community? Yes, it has. So my next guest really needs no introduction because he has introduced himself on the airwaves over the past few years. He's still yet a young man. He's still wet behind the ears. <laughs> we went to school together, but I'm a young man. He's the old man. None other than you can hear him on the game plan every Monday through Friday from 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. None other than Doug Downs, as we caught him in school. DJ Doug Downs. Welcome, Doug, to the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. Thank you. It's wonderful to be on, and since this is a sports podcast, I prefer that when you're referring to me and my age that we go on ahead and use the word 
seasoned, not old. <laughs> All right. We will use the word seasoned. And we are in the season of, well, we're between, well, I guess it's baseball season. You know, this is that time of year where you're just trying to find anything to talk about. Of course, trust me, the NBA and the NFL, they're giving us plenty to talk about in their offseason. But the issue at hand, and I already had Jeff on, and he didn't want to do the debate thing, so I respected that. And I'm pretty sure you being the professional that you are, I'm pretty sure you'll understand that as well, too. So, he is opposed to that name, so he's one of the ones that's glad that the name is removed. Now, what I did to go along with our conversation, it says, why is the word Redskins so offensive? And the term Redskins refers to the government-sanctioned practice of scalping natives oftentimes while they were alive. And it goes on and says in this article here, uh, basically, it talks about the debate over the appropriateness of Native American team names rages on. It says, whatever the pr- propriety of generic Native American teams like Indians, Chiefs, Braves, or Warriors, or tribal names like Utes, Chippewas, or Seminoles, there seems to be a widespread belief that the term Redskins is especially offensive and insulting to Native Americans. So, I'm going to ask you the same question I asked Jeff, because somewhere along the way, his views change during your time at North High. Did there seem to be any backlash? Did there seem to be anyone offended by that name during the time you were going to school there? Never, not one time, not one time was this ever an issue. Not one time was this ever brought up. And, you know, I don't know when Jeff went to North High, but I know that I've had brothers and sisters that have all before me went to North High. I went to North High. I graduated in 1986 and throughout 1974 when my sister went there through 1986 when my other two brothers and, and, and I went there, not one single person or one time through those years did the word redskin come up as an offensive word. So during the years, what has changed all this? I know we're living in a different time, in a different culture. And one of the questions I asked Jeff about that, we were dealing with a team called the Washington Redskins. And do you think a lot of the backlash had to do with how their owners handled the team? Because Daniel Snyder was just basically carrying the torch of the previous owner. And it was a arrogance or a above everybody else type attitude that kind of rubbed people the wrong way. Whereas if they would have had a sit down, as we say, sit down, come to Jesus meeting or a forum to discuss everybody's feelings, do you think it could have been handled differently and we wouldn't even be having this discussion? I don't think this, I think this discussion came up because all of a sudden in society, we had to go back and get woke about everything. We had to go back and look at history about everything. And because of the one or 2% that are going to throw a fit about everything that goes on in society. Now, all of a sudden we have to change everything that's been a part of, uh, America and this culture for the past hundred years. And look, I, you know me, Anthony, you and I went to school together. I am by far the most non-racist person in the world. I, I, I don't think that you should ever downgrade anybody for their religious beliefs, the color of their skin, their political beliefs, any of that. That should never be a part of any conversation. 
that's going on. But on the same token, to me, it is part of the one or 2% that want to base everything that we do anymore on one of those three categories. And they yell the loudest if the rest of us don't just step up and change. You know, when I went to North High, we honored the Native Americans. We had chiefs in full headdress that would show up at our pep assemblies and help lead the what we called the war cry dance. There wasn't a single time during that period did, did the Native American community not embrace North High. From the symbols that we had around our school to the types of pep rallies that we had to making them be a part of what we had going on. And this this woke society that we're living in has to come to a stop and it needs to come to a stop now. And, and you know, you mentioned something, you know, not trying to get off the topic, but you say it's that one to two percent that yells the loudest. It kind of reminds me of that one woman. And because of that one woman, prayer was removed from school. So it's always amazing how it only takes a small group, but they get big things done. And, you know, we always say the majority rule, but in this case, it's really a minority because it's only like one or two that has to say something. And next thing you know, things get rolling. And if that happened back then, and this is happening now, you almost hate to ask this question, but you know what's coming. What's next? So with that being said, what name do you see North going with? Because I cannot phantom the thought of them going with that nickname like the commanders did for two years. I don't know. That's, that's the one to two percent that, that are screaming the loudest what they want. You know, what kind of name do, is going to be acceptable to them? I, I have no idea what they're going to go with. And I, I will tell you this, once a Redskin, always a Redskin, that will stick into my mind and my heart forever and i will take that with great pride and so will a lot of other people from north high look i've talked to a ton of people that graduated from north high a ton and there's not one single person that i've talked to that has been for this and and i think again it goes back to the culture that those of us that that went to north back in the 70s and 80s created for that school somewhere along the line the culture has been changed on how that school views things and how they view even their own selves and their own student bodies. You know, when I roamed the halls of North High, it didn't matter what your skin color was. We had lockers right next to each other. We hung out. We played sports together. We went to parties together. I'm not too sure that's happening anymore. And if that's not happening, it's a crying shame. Absolutely. So, uh, in, in saying, and saying all of that, and you said, find the ones that's crying the loudest. Uh, the one thing I noticed when I read the Board of Education article about the removal of the name, and it was about six to zero, so you knew that was going to come, as opposed to had it been three, three, and someone would have had to break the tie. One of the things they did say in that article was they're not going to remove the artifacts. Uh, their ninth grade class is going to be an advocacy class where they're going to still have the own hands Native American experience. So it's like, even though the name is removed, it seems like they're going to still keep some of the tradition. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, they should keep some of the tradition because, you know, North High is, what, the second oldest school in Wichita outside of East High. So that tradition has been around for a very long time. And, you know, you drive over there by North High. I don't know how many people that listen to the podcast have been over there lately, but I mean, that whole area and the way that that school is designed and put together, to me, it's, it's, it's very beautiful. It's something that 
honors again the Native American community, and for them to you know go in and grind some of that stuff uh, that, that, that's made by concrete or whatever it is off the building or off the bridges would just that'd be a shame. Right, and I, and I think that is going to still stay intact. But like you said, we're in a different time, different society we live in, and even though that's still going to remain the same for now, you have to say for now, knock on wood. You just hope that one or two percent don't have a public outcry and be like, y'all need to remove that because that would be a shame because North High is an historic school and it would be a shame to go by and see that school looking any different than what is looking now. Well, Doug, I do want to you know, thank. Yes, I, I would just leave leave by saying this is and you ask where's this going to stop? Who knows? But. What about the other schools in the area? Liberals already said they're not getting rid of the name Redskins. Andale is not going to get rid of the name Indians. Clearwater is not going to get rid of the name Indians. Where does this stuff stop? I mean, uh, so now that they've now that the one to two percent has raised their voice loud enough that that North and the school board here didn't have a spine enough to stand up to them. Now, what are they going to do that they've got this change? Are they are they going to take their their protest or whatever it is? out to these small communities and try to force their hand. Good luck to them if they try to do that, because it's not going to happen, you know, and, and you, you brought up the Washington Redskins. You, you really want to know what caused them to change their name. Oh, <laughs> there's their sponsor FedEx finally said, if you don't change their name, we're pulling our contract. But what gets me about that was when FedEx signed that contract as the naming rights of that stadium, they knew exactly what Washington's name was. So why all of a sudden did FedEx get woke and bow down to the one to two percent? That's the question I have. Right. So, like I said, this, this I, I I don't want to reference it like this, but as I always say about my podcast, building up ahead of steam. Right now, it's dormant, but at some point, it's liable to build up another head of steam. So, once again, Doug Downs, host. No, you're the host. You're the man. You've been there the longest, so I'm not going to give Mason that title. The host of The Game Plan, which can be heard Monday through Fridays on KGSO, 1410 AM, 93.9 FM, or on the TuneIn app, or on Facebook Live, Twitch TV. What other social platforms y'all have out there? We're working on a ton of them right now, but more than anything... (laughs) If you uh, just check us out on 1410 AM or 93.9 FM or the TuneIn app, you can pretty much hear it about anywhere. And if you want to see our ugly mugs, then you can watch our show every morning on Facebook Live. (laughs) All right. Well, Doug, once again, I want to thank you for being on the A-Train Sports Talk podcast. And we'll hash some more things out throughout the days, months, weeks to come. So thanks once again for joining me. Thank you. Once again, Doug Downs, host of the game plan that could be heard right here every Monday through Friday from 6 to 9, 6 a.m. to 9 a.m., 1410 a.m., 93.9 FM, KGSO, Wichita. Well, I am going to take another break. And when I come back, I'm going to get back into the NIL, the other side of the NIL. So stay tuned to A Train Sports Talk Podcast, your host and conductor, Anthony Smith.
You're listening to the Best of 2022 interview on the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. signed by the Cowboys or should he not be signed by the Cowboys? I see James's point, but I also see Ed's point. By the time this segment is over, maybe everybody will be able to see the layout and why Cam should or why Cam shouldn't be a Cowboy. So, Ed, you were the first one I seen that said, nope, no way, please no. So state your case why Cam shouldn't be a Cowboy. I think uh, for me, again, a lot of respect uh, to the former 2015 MVP, but it's been a while since we've seen him play at that level. New England was a not a good fit at all. I was surprised that Bill Belichick even signed him. It was not a good fit. And what I mean by that, you know, the, 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 uh, and James knows much more about patterns and schemes and offensive uh, philosophy than I do. Uh, you know, a lot of timing patterns there with Brady. I don't think his strength is a pot is is a as a pocket passer. So I didn't think uh, it was. A, you know, and, he, and we haven't seen the running cam. And you know, since he got hurt, we have not seen any, a phenomenal athlete back in 2015. The Superman is uh, very entertaining, right? So I didn't think that was a good fit in New England. You know, going back to Carolina last year, he wins that first game and you know does the Superman. I'm back, you know, and I'm keeping my eye on, uh, eye on him because he's an exciting player. I may like the Dallas Cowboys, but I enjoy the National Football League. So when I was watching, the percentage of completions is down. Does he have a big-time number one receiver in Carolina? Um, 
probably not what he uh, used to have back in the day when he was, uh, you know, he was the MVP. But again, his threat was from the pocket. A lot of it was from the pocket, big, strong, mobile, can roll out, extend plays. Mm -hmm. And I just don't think we've seen that the last two seasons. So, you know, in, in, you know right now the, uh, the backup quarterback is Cooper Rush, won one game, right? He won a game last year against Minnesota. And can, can the Cowboys do better than Cooper Rush? Uh, they can. I just don't know if it's going to be Cam Newton. I would be very surprised, uh, J- uh, James and Anthony, if the Dallas Cowboys signed Cam Newton. All right. Well, James, let me hear your take on why he should be a, in a Cowboy uniform. First of, all, first of all, I want to give you all the credit in the world. Yeah, that was an excellent breakdown. And actually touched on a lot of my points that I was going to make. And um, like I said, when I, when I speak balance and intelligence football, from a football standpoint, that's what I'm talking about. Because you didn't completely slam the guy. You gave him reasons why against and reasons why potentially for. In terms of my reasons for, I think what I'm looking at is he's an established NFL quarterback. As Ed uh, mentioned, he was a, a former MVP back in 2015, light years ago. And um, at this point in time in the game, we realize that he's not that guy anymore. What I do look at with Cam Newton is the fact that he, despite uh, what he's saying, I think that Cam Newton is still a threat with his legs. So I think even, I think he scored eight, uh, Cam, uh, I, I actually meant to research this, but I think he actually scored eight touchdowns rushing with the New England Patriots. So it's one of those things, he's still a situational quarterback with his legs, particularly down in the red zone. And then that's, a, that's an area right now where we struggle in. You can use Cam in certain in certain packages. I mean, I know the saying is always if you have two quarterbacks, you don't have one. But that's not true in Dallas's case because we do have one in that Prescott. We just need uh, support around systems when we start to get in the second and 12s and the second and 15s and the third and 11s where you can bring Cam Newton in and he can get you a first down or close to a first down rushing, running the ball, and you're also as a threat as a passer because whereas he might not be a guy that can beat you with his arm consistently anymore, one thing that that, that uh, Cam Newton is is a rhythm passer. When when Cam is on, he's on. I mean, he is a threat throwing in the scenes. He's a threat throwing outside. He's a threat throwing the deep crosses and things of that nature when he's in rhythm. Where he does struggle is on vertical routes when the play breaks down. He's not very accurate with the football when the guys are scrambling all over the place. He's got the scrambles there because he tries to rely on his arm too much. And he does not have the proper technique as a passer to put his foot in the ground and drive the ball mm-hmm. when it's an off-schedule throw. Going to the, uh, the, the camp being 2015, unfortunately, like you said, we don't really have a good look because... He had limited chances with the Pats and Panthers due to the receivers in, in the room. The same thing that Tom Brady had, and that's why he moved on from New England and went on the greener pastures with uh, Tampa Bay and, of course, won a Super Bowl. Um, and looking at the available free agents on the market, none of them none of them float my boat. We're talking about Ryan Fitzpatrick. We're talking about Mike Lennon, A.J. McCarron, um, Garrett Gilbert, and Josh Rosen. And if, even if we look at our own team, people are hyping the fact that uh, Cooper Rush went into Minnesota and won a game. Okay, 
he went into Minnesota and won a game in idealistic dome conditions. Now, I would hate to see us in the playoffs in bad weather, say in Green Bay or in one of the northern cities trying to win a playoff game with Cooper Rush because he has about 35 yards at the most on his arm. So with Cam Newton, he has proven that he can travel. He can run the ball when the plays break down. and He has an arm strength to cut the ball through as long as you manage the situations for him. See, see, if I was going to argue against either one of you guys, I'd be in a losing battle because, like I say, I see where both of you guys are coming from. But since you brought up the name Cooper Rush, and yes, he did go into Minnesota, and I have to say I was impressed. But I also think another thing that helped Cooper Rush, as opposed to, say, the year before, or Andy Dalton, is this right here. The team had his back, and that means a whole lot when the team has your back. That boosts your confidence level. So with that being said, is Cam Newton a locker room guy fit for the Dallas Cowboys as opposed to, say, Cooper Rush? Who would you rather see as your number two quarterback, Cooper Rush or Cam Newton? I think that's uh, that's an excellent question. Now, you, you know, and James, you made some excellent points concerning Cam Newton, especially about the part of driving the ball, right, the mechanically uh, his mechanics have not been always been the greatest. He relied on athleticism, which carried him for a long time. But some of that athleticism is gone, right? And sometimes he doesn't drive the ball through. And sometimes you, you look at him, he makes an amazing throw into, you know, right, you know, splits uh, defenders and, uh, you know, you're on to, off to the races. Um, that I think that's a good point that Anthony brings up. You know, Cam Newton is going to be Cam Newton, right? He's got a, a, a large persona. He's going to come in with the hats and, and dress how he is. That's, that's Cam. And no, no one's going to take that away from him, nor should, should they. Uh, that's 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 his moxie. That's what he does. So as far as the locker room guy, and it's an excellent question and an excellent point. You know, a lot of people would say, hey, you know, is there going to be a, a tug of leadership there? And you know, it, it, and we laugh about it because there's no there's no question who the leader in that locker room is. It's uh, Dak Prescott. But there's you know, people on our little uh, group, right, that would immediately try to say, well, it's uh, it's Cam Newton that's the leader and this and that, right? Ridiculous things that we know aren't true. So, you know, it, but the press loves to stir stuff up. They do. We know that. Um, so I think Even that's, a I, I, again, I'd be very surprised if Jerry Jones uh, made that signing or you know, Stephen Jones or even if Mike McCarthy would do that. I'd be, or I'd be very surprised uh, from that standpoint anyway. But a good question as far as in the locker room, uh, Cooper Rush isn't going to cause any kind of drama. He's, he, we know he's number two. We know Cam would be number two as well if he came in, which, again, I think it's a long shot. But as far as in the locker room right now, um, I think right now there's no – there's it's, it's uh, unquestioned uh, that Dak Prescott is the leader in that, in that locker room. And bringing Cam in, there might be some questions from other people outside the fence on who is the leader. So uh, I think sometimes when you bring in a player like that with that personality, those questions will arise. James? Again, once again, I mean, I, I just absolutely love that response from Ed. I can't speak highly enough about how he can articulate his thought process. And I, I largely agree with him. But I think that in terms of a leadership with him not being a frontline guy, that, like he said, is an unquestioned leader. I don't think that Cam Newton has ever been, I don't ever recall anybody saying that Cam was a bad teammate at any point. You know, he has, he does have the flamboyance. He has his hats. He has their persona. Of course, it kind of fits what the Dallas Cowboys do because we have an owner that's like that. 
So when you look at it in that response, um, Cam Newton can sell tickets. The one place that a player like Cam Newton can do come in and be a benefit to the Dallas Cowboys, you really look at the New Orleans Saints. You had Drew Brees doing his thing, and they bring Tyson Hill in. And this is the thing that teams and players and fans fail to realize how important that 12th man is. If you bring the excitement of a Cam Newton knowing that he could break a big play at any time, it's going to bring a certain level of of vigor to the crowd, which is going to transfer through to the players. And it's not always what you say and what you do in the locker room, but it's what you do on the field. And if people can gain that respect for who you are on the field, it makes it easier for you to, to, to be a locker room presence that people are drawn to. Because at the end of the day, they're all men and they're going to do what it is they want to do. But I think that the thing that Cam Newton can bring versus any other quarterback that's on the roster right now, anybody that's on the free agent list will do. He can bring that level of excitement that will get that crowd in the game that will make the whole entire team function better. That's my opinion. And there's that moment of silence. I. Hey, I am just so thrilled to have both you guys on at the same time because even though I'm the conductor, I'm enjoying the ride my own self. Between Ed and between James, I mean, you couldn't ask for a better first segment of our podcast. Uh, <clears throat> so you both, both of you guys bring up good valid points on whether he's a locker room guy, whether he's not a locker room guy. And like you said, James, the production on the field should be how one is measure uh with that being said <clears throat> and we know jerry jones or steven might be, make some move that will make us scratch our heads so if let's just play the hypothetical game if he does bring cam newton in basically what you're looking at is because it's established right now cooper rush is the number two quarterback what happens if Cooper Rush, by chance, happens to beat out Cam Newton for that number two spot. How well does that set with Cam Newton being relegated to a number three position? And how does that affect the team chemistry moving forward? Because basically the, basically the narrative is kind of almost like the Raiders bringing in Colin Kaepernick for a, oh, there's a Colin Kaepernick reference. Wow. It's just like them bringing him in for a workout, but what happens if he fails? So now you have to look at the narrative. What happens if Newton does get signed? He comes in and he's looking at a number three spot behind Cooper Rush. How does that set well with Cam? Like I say, what does it do as far as team chemistry? Because that could be I a think, combustible uh, part. Yeah. Um, I think it's uh, he's either number two or he's not on the roster. And I, I think the other point that I didn't make, and I and I should have made this, we want Dak to be challenged. I want him to look over his shoulder and say, you know what? If I don't get it done, there's a dude behind me that will. That's what I'm kind of looking. You know, a, a guy that's not he's a starter. Again, a lot of guys on our site are going to say, get rid of him, sign this guy. We all know the Cleveland Browns have gone through 31 quarterbacks looking for that one guy, right? So when I hear this stuff, or you know, draft this guy, they should have done this, the if and if and if game, right? That game is over with, man. We have to go with uh, who's the quarterback now. I guess I want to see Dak challenge for sure. Did kind of make him make him uncomfortable a little bit, right? Like, hey, there's a guy there 
waiting to maybe take my job. But uh, it, it's either he's number two or he's not on the roster. That's the bottom line. He's not going to be a number three. There's no chance. So that's Kenyon. There? Yeah, if he's signed, if he's signed, he's a number two or he's not on the roster. All right, James. Wow. I mean, I, I couldn't have said that any better myself. Um, I'm with Ed in the sense that if he does not make it as a number two, um, he's definitely wouldn't be as number three. But I, I do believe that you made a, you said it hypothetically speaking, correct? Uh, yeah. You said hypothetically speaking? Yeah, hypothetically I, speaking, yeah. Yeah, I mean, in a hypothetical situation, um, I don't, I don't think it would sit well because Cam, unfortunately, I think if he, it, it, with his former status in the league, being down to a number three, that right there would be a little bit too much for him to handle. And I think at that point, he would become a distraction in the locker room because at that point, he would still seek the attention that he would have hoped to have as the prestige as a player. But with him being third string behind a guy that it was cut by the Cowboys, which was a quarterback needy team, then went to New York and was cut by the Giants, which is a quarterback needy team. And now he's in third string in Dallas. I think that that would be too much for him to overcome. And I think that at that point he would become a cancer in the locker room. So in that regard, when you speak of it hypothetically, it would be it would impact the Dallas Cowboys in a very negative standpoint from a negative standpoint. But to your point. And to Ed's point, having Dak Prescott with that guy, as you said, behind him that's going to push him and say, okay, I know that i got to do better in certain situations. I think that that right there would be a win-win situation all the way around because at the end of the day, yeah, Dak does need uh, he, he does need that push. I mean, every every player needs to know there's any second somebody can come in and take their job. And if you have somebody come in and sub packages, running plays, especially if they're successful, it's just going to make Dak push that much harder to make sure that he does not get the team or potentially get the team in a situation where we're in these third and long situations, these second long situations. So it would be a win-win uh, in that scenario when you speak non-hypothetically. I think it's sounding good thus far. So now let me kind of shift around a little bit because we're talking Dak, we're talking Cam, and since since this is the Cowboys' true chat room in the form of a podcast, let me ask this question. Are you guys impressed with the draft? Can we see a rise of Ezekiel Elliott? Because, you know, he has taken on his share of criticism so much to the point to where some are saying that Tony Pollard should be RB1 and Zeke should be RB2. But do you think that the line is improved? I mean, let some guys get away. Maybe they should have gotten away. We picked up a few guys. And Zeke seems to be thrilled about the addition of some of the new linemen that he is saying that y'all going to see the old Zeke. So what do y'all think about Zeke's status? Um, you know, uh, I think, uh, you know, they brought in the kid from Tulsa and in, in in a, they, they you know drafted as a left tackle. They're going to move him inside. And I think a lot of people were concerned about the number of penalties he had incurred uh, in, at Tulsa. You know, he, he led the team in penalties. He's a mauler, though, He's a, and I think they can work on technique. Uh, it, look, they, they tried that with Connor Williams. They tried to bulk him up. It didn't he, He's getting, uh, you know, he's getting pulverized. He's getting blown up a lot, right? Tyler, Tyler Biotis is still there. 
Uh, I was looking at a little bit of film from uh, training camp. It looks like he bulked up, but it's, a, you know, it's about technique, right? The great centers of the uh, of the past, Travis Frederick and Mark Sipnoski was undersized, but knew how to use leverage. So James knows a lot more about line and technique than me. So, you know, they've got a Josh Ball that was a swing tackle last year. They're pretty excited about the fifth round pick. Now, uh, the line, uh, you know, you let Laurel Collins go. And, uh, you know, he dropped off so quick. Uh, he came out of college or played guard, right? Uh, you know, he really looked good. And when he got his money and then hurt his hip, he was never the same. It, it surprised me how quick he dropped off. That line dropped off quick when Frederick retired. Uh, you know, in Ron Leary, uh, people remember how good of a left guard he was. And I don't know that they ever adequately replaced him. So, uh, you know, I got to say this about Zeke, and I've said this on several chat rooms. Uh, we, we, we've uh, seen the best of Zeke. Those years are behind him. You know, that 2016 burst is gone. We used to see him hurdle tacklers, use the stiff arm, volume chunk yards, 6, 8, 10, 12, the feed me, me all the time, right? We don't see that as much anymore. And a lot of it's overuse. Now, Pollard taking the place of Zeke as far as blitz protection? No. I mean, Zeke is still a heck of a third down uh, back. And, uh, you know, he can, he's a good receiver out of the backfield. Uh, Pollard might be the you know, more, more shifty back at this point with speed. But as far as the overall package, I, I'll still take Ezekiel Elliott. And at that point, at this point uh, in his career and with the contract that he's uh, receiving, he's not going to the bench. I don't care what anyone says. The money he's making, he's not going to sit on the bench. Yeah, I mean, I, I fully agree with that. Um, and looking at uh, Zeke Elliott, I, I firmly, and based on the the addition of Tyler Smith coming in and moving in the left guard, what, what a lot of people don't realize is uh, from a technique standpoint, um, a lot of his penalties were acquired when he was having to reach out on the edge and stop a speed rusher. It wasn't counting moves. It wasn't anything like that. He was just getting beat off the edge and he was grabbing guys. When you move inside, you had a protection of a tackle on one side and the guard on the other, which means that you just simply focus on defeating the guy that is before you. And he has full man strength at 21 years old. He has excellent feet. He's not very coordinated right now with his hands and his feet, which is not a problem, but which is part of his problem. But, you know, it's not as important inside as it is outside. So once he gets his hands on you, he's going to destroy you. So as it relates to Zeke, I fully expect Zeke to be above 4.5 yards per carry this season. And as to Ed's point, he's not making you miss anymore. And to be honest with you, he kind of was, wasn't like that past 2016, but Dallas did such an excellent job of bringing in uh, receivers that could block downfield. And that right there allowed Zeke the additional yards. And coming into this year, we now have guys, I feel, James Washington, T uh, Jalen Tobert, Michael Gallup. These are all got uh, C.D. Lamb. These are all guys that go hard and hustle all the time. I know everybody says Amari Cooper has this thing, whereas he, you know, he's a great route runner, and he truly is. But he did not give full effort, in my opinion, at all times, particularly in the blocking game. This is where Dallas will increase, will improve considerably this year, because we won't have Connor Williams getting pushed back into the backfield all the time. It's gonna, uh, Tyler Smith is going to make Biotish better. And with these receivers getting out the things downfield blocking, I think that you're going to see some some bulk runs. Because right now, Zeke Elliott is a volume rusher that's not very efficient. He he gets exactly what is blocked. 
So if the players block to pick up five yards, Zeke will get five or six yards. Zeke is not getting 10, 15, 20 yards of chunk runs anymore because that's not who he is by himself because he struggles to make people miss. People talk about health. People talk about things of this nature. But I said about two years ago that especially as thickly, uh, thickly muscled as he is, he's going to start to have soft tissue injuries, which is exactly what's kind of sort of happening to him right now. And when you start getting in these soft tissue injuries, it affects your joints. Once your joints start breaking down, you're no longer explosive as you used to be. So he needs he's going to need, need a lot more support. But to the point, keep an eye on Tony Pollard this year. Should, should Tony Pollard be a running back one in Dallas? No, he shouldn't. Because I don't think that physically he will be able to make it through a full season as a running back one. But and and using him as spot uh spot carry and so on and so forth and, and putting him out wide and letting him do his thing out there, I think it, it is an excellent select uh selection. But it has it comes down to what Kellen Moore can scheme up. And right now Thank he is you. not showing the ability to scheme Tony Pollard properly. Thank Tony Pollard should be more of an Eric Metcalf. Terry Metcalf type of running back, something that we had, something we haven't had since Lance Dunbar. Because you remember the dynamic that Lance Dunbar brought this team. Tony Pollard is two times better than Dunbar, but right now we don't have an offensive coordinator who sees it. Thank you, and I believe that's why to this point, Jerry Jones also brought in another offensive coordinator. That should tell you something. Think about this fact right here, Kellamore was brought in to interview for several jobs during the offseason. Wasn't hired. Then, to make things a little bit more quirky, Jerry Jones said, you know what, I think I need another offensive coordinator to help Kellen Moore. Now, we had just a tad bit under five minutes and some change. Let's have this Kellen Moore conversation because he needs to be exposed as well. Kellen, uh, you know what? Uh, when things were going good early in the season, I thought uh, you know he was uh, the schemes were working well, right? Uh, everyone was getting uh, fed. Everybody was uh, happy. Um, remember, uh, they beat the Chargers without five starters. Zeke Elliott actually ran the ball well that game uh, in in Los Angeles, and uh, the Chargers are. I don't care what anyone says; they're a formidable team. Uh, Herbert's a very good quarterback. I thought that was an impressive win. So taking Tampa Bay down to the wire, right? I mean, I, they should have won that game. They really should have. The kicker missed two extra points and a, you know, a makeable field goal. So um, I thought, and then they, uh, but remember too, uh, they didn't want to run the ball that game, right? They they they, uh, they passed, uh, I think Prescott passed 45, 50 times. Uh, you know, he, he had a good game uh, passing the ball, but uh, they didn't run the ball. So I think as the uh, in the middle of the season, I started uh, wondering. Okay, you know they, they went through that offensive slump against Denver, against the Raiders, you know against uh, you know against Washington. Uh, they did beat them, but uh, you know it, all of a sudden the uh, the the uh, yards. Uh, Prescott had a great game at uh, New England, right, in overtime, throwing that pass to C.D. Lamb, and then then later in the year, it's like, okay, what's going on with the offense, man? I mean, you got uh, Cooper, uh, you got Lamb, you got Gallup, and then he got hurt. Uh, you know, yeah, Noah Brown's an effective uh, fourth receiver. Uh, Blake Jarwin hasn't been Blake Jarwin since uh, two years ago, but he's, you know, he's, he's uh, he used to be a pretty decent receiver. Dalton Schultz is uh, one of uh, Prescott's main targets when he feels a safety valve, right? So um, I, I, I wondered what happened. And a friend of mine from here, from Albuquerque, Daryl Chestnut, played for the Lobos, uh, New Mexico Lobos here, running back, him and Amari Cooper are very good friends. 
and I kind of, I, you know, he was going to be on my show today, but he couldn't make it. Uh, we're going to do it next week. But I asked him, what does Amari say? You know, what, what did Amari, I wanted to know what Coop said, because they're very good friends. And he said he thought it was more business. In other words, was it schemes? Was it more? What was it? Because Daryl knows football. And he said it was more, they th- he thought it was a business decision. They were going to move on from Cooper, but I can't see anybody telling Dak don't throw to Coop. I was kind of wondering, why is he getting less targets? But I'll say one thing, James, that you said earlier. There's times with his body language, if he's not getting passes, you can tell by his body language, he checks out. I've said that two years ago. I saw him. Oh, yeah. I saw him when sometimes he'd get frustrated. And he, he, again, an amazing route runner. Amazing, right? One of the best route runners we've seen, there's no question. But I think sometimes when things don't go his way, I think I, I saw a lot of pouting. So, but my friends who knows him very well said it was a business decision. They were going to move on from him, but I can't see anyone telling Dak, don't throw to Cooper. I can't see that. So that's just what he's, he, uh, he said. And again, he's very good friends with Amari Cooper. So I think Kellen Moore started out well, kind of flamed out in the middle. And then against San Francisco, they put up, what, 14 points. So I think there's a lot of questions coming into the season about Kellen Moore. Yeah, I, I actually made a post on Facebook about Kellen Moore. And this was actually before the Denver game because I had seen like uh, certain things, certain situations, whereas he was not building because I used to be an offensive coordinator and head coach. I call plays. So he got away from doing the things that we that, that we were doing well. He did not build on he did not build on successful plays from the past because what I would do is I would take one base concept as a as a coordinator and and do ten plays out of it. I'm I'm going to give you the same look. I'm going to give you the same action, and I'm gonna I'm gonna allow my I'm gonna sit back and acknowledge how the defense reacts to what you do. So if I if I run a sweep. And I and I check I check the depth of the safeties. Okay, you creeping up. At this point, I'm gonna give you that same action, and I'm gonna run I'm gonna run a 999. I'm gonna shoot all my guys downfield. Because at that point, you know you got you got everything slide down. And the one thing that Tellemore did not do is he did not build on successful plays. He would actually literally run the same play over and over and over again. And the key thing to understanding what a defense is gonna do. It's free snap motion. This is something that Kellen Moore stopped doing after about week six. And once he fell off of his aggressive nature that he went right. with early in the season, sorry to interrupt you. Fall back into the to the Jason Garrett to the Jason Garrett scheme. We got once, he, once he did that, we became predictable again. And he never actually made the adjustment beyond that. From we got week, five seconds here. From week seven, yeah, he he, he just didn't adjust. Welcome back to the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. In case you're wondering what happened in that last segment, in radio terms, it's called a hard out. Ed, you know something about that, right? Oh, yeah, man. There's, you know, we've got to take a lot of breaks from what we do, and I had to get used to them. Sometimes they, uh, they you know, they cut cut it off, and that's, uh, that's got to get to the sponsors, pay the bill, man. I get it. Right. So we had what we called in hard out, and this will happen. James paused at the right time, so it wouldn't seem like we cut him off, so. We're back for this segment here, and uh, we're basically roasting Kellen Moore. Because one of the things we can say about Kellen Moore is, like you say, prior to that Denver game, they had a good balance going on. But during the Dallas, during the Denver game and games beyond that, the offense became very predictable, very stagnated. 
it's almost as if the other team knew what the Cowboys were doing. If you want to make matters even worse, just look at the playoff game. How is it that the 49ers, missing key players on their defense, is still wreaking havoc in the Cowboys' backfield? Oh, and we're not going to talk about 14 seconds. So, James, we're going to let you go ahead and pick up where you left off. Pick up where you left off at in that last segment. Okay, if, like, like I was saying before, um, I think that he struggles with making in-game adjustments. Um, he actually got better in 2021 in the scripting portion of it, which is about the first 15, 20 plays. Everybody's complaining about, oh, what Dallas had, Dak's got all these three and outs, three and outs, three and outs. And why does Dak wait until the fourth quarter to start playing football? So if you really look at it for what it is, if you script the first 20 to 25 plays and you're doing three and outs, you're taking basically your first three or four possessions based on what it is that your offensive coordinator has scripted. And then once you get into that period where Dak can sort of ad-lib and do what he do, then he takes off. This is what the people who who are clueless about how offensive, how, how schematics and how play calling works, they always want to blame the quarterback for things that are not going early in games. But if you really think about it, this has been going on in Dallas for a long time, 10 years or so, where we don't necessarily get off the fast starts. And it comes back to bad to bad scripting and, no, and, and a lack of in-game adjustments. When you talk about the San Francisco football game, Fred Warner, the linebacker, uh, actually came out and said that, you know, he was they, they did a segment on him. He said that he knew, uh, based on an alignment, that all he had to do, I mean, he literally paid no attention to the play action in the backfield. He just ran to the scene. And that right there is he did that three, four, five, six times. He said, all based on film study. He said, I picked it was something we picked up on in film study. And we just weren't going to let Dallas do it because we knew that they, they were not going to attack the perimeter run. And he said, all he had to do was play along the scenes. And when they went to that, to that two, that, that three by one set, that two by two set, he said he knew to go up to scramble to the weak side opposite of Dalton Schultz because, of course, Dalton Schultz is not necessarily a vertical threat. So he could actually scrape over and, and take out that side of the field and then skate back over to the middle of the field to take out shows if he needed to. So it was like to your point, it was definitely about predictability. And it comes down once again to pre-snap motion. When you have an athletic linebacking core like the San Francisco 49ers have, you have to attack them and make them spread out. Because at that point, if you can get them to run along the seams, running along the numbers, then you can sit down inside and make the shorter passes over the middle. And at that point, get everything drawn in. And then that's when you attack the deep the deep quarter flats in, on the second level and even vertically or down the scene. But that's not what Dallas was doing. Dallas was running a strict vertical concept with nothing horizontally coming up underneath. And it was it's very easy to defend. Now going back to the Cam Newton element when you do that, if you go vertical like that, you're opening up passing lanes left and right that Cam Newton can take off and run. It's not it's a no-brainer. At the end of the day, he might not be who he was in 2015. But when you got a quarterback that's six five and two hundred and forty pounds that can break tackles, if you run these guys off, you got to save your linebacker that's got out of position. He's got eight, ten, twelve yards before he's even touched. So I just wanted to jump back on the Cam Newton things that relates to the legs because you know, yes, he's not that guy that he used to be, but he's still a guy that can be in effect. And in that in that respect, a guy like Cam Newton could take the onus off of Kellen Moore having to beat the defenses with his mind. So with that being said then, because we know with Cooper, he's pretty much gonna manage the game like he did 
Minnesota. With Dak Prescott, they want to protect their investment. Case in point, I can't think of what game that was last year, and they were like, why is Dak running the ball? And, I mean, it created a firestorm. Like, no, you just came off an injury. We're trying to protect you, especially all the money we have invested. So, I guess, case in point, that's where a cam does come into play. So, now it's heads or tails. Pick up cam, sign him, or don't sign him. I mean, because with Cooper, you know what you're getting in the end. I mean, hey, I appreciate that win, but here now cam, like you say, has that extra element. So, like I say, I see both you guys' point on the Cam Newton situation. So, now, where does Dallas go from what is the as far as up like? as far as signing cam or not signing me or yeah because i'm gonna let y'all have y'all's final say on why cam should be and why cam shouldn't be signed to the cowboys you know made a you made a good point about quarterbacks and when prescott you know when dak uh well, ran out of the pocket he, he he's very effective at doing it right when you just you know when you uh, suffer an injury the way he did right uh, and it was gruesome let's be honest it was gruesome uh, I've seen Joe Theismann get hurt. Uh, you know, I've seen some gruesome quarterback injuries. Uh, you know, uh, Alex Smith, right? I've seen some uh, gruesome injuries over my 50-some years of watching the NFL. Uh, quarterbacks that run with reckless abandon sooner or later are going to get caught. You know, Randall Cunningham and Green Bay back in the day, right? Who ran like Randall did? Nobody ran like that guy. Jeez, that guy was used to scare me to death when I was a Cowboy fan back in the day in the last two minutes because he was going to find a way to win, and he usually did. Uh, not a great pocket passer, right, but great athleticism, could punt the ball, right? So I think any quarterback uh, that has run like that is normally is going to catch up with them. That's what happened to uh, to Dak a little bit. I didn't I didn't blame him for not running as much last year. I wish he would have, you know. And, and uh, but there's a little psychological factor that I can't speak to, uh, to about that injury. I can't say anything about it and say how it affected his play or his running. I would kind of be a little nervous about it, to be honest with you. But I guess you know people are going to say he gets paid. He should do whatever he's got to do. And hopefully this year we'll see more of a uh, a guy that uh, ventures out when he needs to and be smart about it. Now, James's point about Newton bringing in uh, some packages for him, I, I see his point. I do, you know, uh, and, and I think one of the things, too, is when you're behind the chains like that, second and 15 and second and 16, it's tough. It's tough, right, for football teams to overcome those down and distances. The other thing we didn't mention were the numerous penalties the offensive line had, right? They had a lot of penalties last year. I remember Dak would make, you know, good play, uh, holding, 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 you know, a lot, of, a lot of penalties by the offensive line, so they have to clean that up. So I just got to say, I, I'll be surprised. Again, I'll say that shocked if they sign Cam Newton. I, I don't think it's going to happen for the reasons that I mentioned. Uh, I just don't see it happening. All right, James. And, and, and I agree. I, I, I really, I mean, it's a it's a fun thought to, to actually have a guy like Cam, you know, kind of that Swiss Army Knife type of thing that can come in and do this and that to the point I don't think Dallas will sign him. I think that uh, – Jerry Jones is uh, dedicated to a fault. For some reason, they've taken a, a, a liking to Cooper Rush. I really don't get it myself, but um, the pros and signing, uh, I've already touched on. You know, it becomes a chess match when you're dealing with a guy like Cam Newton, because if Cam Newton was in in certain packages against the 49ers, Dallas wins that football game. Because at this point, Fred Warner understands that he just can't run with his back turned down the seam looking at receivers. Because one thing about Cam is he can take that one step back in the pocket and take off running in the seam. And if you got your back turned, 
he's already 20 yards downfield by the time you catch him. And I think that when you have a quarterback, like Dallas's offense right now, everybody knows that Dak Prescott's not going to run. So they're going to they're gonna run their linebackers underneath 8, 10 yards downfield because they know that we don't have any horizontal concepts. Everything is vertical, so you can actually compress. You can keep your safety. You can play his corners off, slide your linebackers underneath, and keep your safeties high, uh, too high over the top. And it's, it's, it's very limited areas in which Dak Prescott can pass the football. That's why we can't succeed against better teams, better defensive teams, because they have the better – talent they have the better schemes and we just simply cannot succeed in that situation but the one thing that a guy like cam will bring is if he starts running those linebackers are not eight ten yards downfield those linebackers are in or six or seven yards in and they're stationary which is going to open up the middle of the field ultimately this is where dallas wants to pass the football and you can tell it because this is where we're flooding our receivers to but if you have linebackers that are playing at a six-yard depth versus a 10-yard depth, then that right there is going to open up two yards of passing windows for Dak Prescott. Because all of a sudden, you don't have to worry about the linebacker jumping in, deflecting the ball, and getting tipped to the safety. You're giving your, your, your receivers who, at the end of the day, can beat these guys on these deep crosses. We have players that can, that can win on routes. We don't have a scheme that supports that. And that's the issue that Dallas is having. And when bring in a pro for Cam Newton is he's gonna have he's gonna have those safeties basically at quarter depth. They're gonna be about 12 yards off the line of scrimmage because they're gonna assume that he's not gonna look to pass. And the one thing that he still has the ability to do, once again, if he's in rhythm, he can throw those passes. Now, that scene pass down over the middle, over that safety will be a beautiful thing if he can hit it to Jalen Tober because I'm very impressed with this. I mean, I know he's a rookie and rookies normally don't normally don't don't do things with Jalen don't do much you know coming into the league but I think that with this Jalen Tober kid I'm, I'm I am very impressed with who I, I watch film on this guy I like the way he runs routes he has sneaky he's 6'3 190 pounds long he can get vertical and he has good hands he tracks the ball well and I this guy I think the sky's the limit for the guy but we, we, it definitely needs to be scheme right. But going back, I'm sorry to your question. I got off track right quick. I got excited. Uh, Cam Newton, with his ability to beat you with his arm and his legs, will be a very good addition in sub packages for the Dallas Cowboys. Well, y'all couldn't have said it any better. And as a programming note, I'll let you know that Anchor is powered by Spotify. So, with that being said, you guys pretty much know what my poll question will be. Should the Cowboys sign Cam Newton? That will be the poll question. So, those of you who listen to this podcast, please cast your vote. Also, do me a favor. Give me a five-star rating. I would really appreciate that. I want this podcast to blow up, especially with great guests like James and Ed. You can ask for a more informative, straight talk, cowboy podcast than what you're getting today this ought to be the number one rated podcast just for these just for these two segments right here so i want to thank my two guests for being on the show today and i have to say like this i am very honored to have you guys on and we will have to do this again not one-on-one but one-on-two you guys are welcome on the train anytime all right I love it. 
Thanks so much for having, uh, having us, Anthony. Uh, James, man, good to talk to you and share these uh, cowboy opinions on a team that we're very passionate about, man. It's uh, good to hear your uh, your takes. Hey, absolutely. And you as well, Ed. I really appreciate what you're doing, brother. Keep up doing what you're doing. And Anthony, you do the same, brother. And I'm always going to be here for you. Just let me know, and I'll be here anytime you want me. All right. Appreciate you guys. I'm going to cut you guys loose here. And when I come back, I will have some more talk as I'm going to get into some NBA talk with another guest. So stay tuned. It is the A Train Sports Talk Podcast with your number one conductor, Anthony Smith. Coast to coast in the air. Oh, I can't use that. That's a Ben Mallard tagline. Anyway, I'll be back after word from my sponsor. If you would like to have your ad ran on the A-Train Sports Talk podcast, simply reach out to me at a.trainsportstalk at gmail.com or at 316-553-2010. Or if you would like to sponsor a segment, you can also reach me at a.trainsportstalk at gmail.com or 316-553-2010. So let's grow together. It is the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast, your host and conductor, Anthony Smith. You're listening to the best of 2022 interview on the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. It is the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast, the 200th edition. All right, who would have thought when I first started, we'd be saying 200th edition. And along the way, I picked up some passengers. And the young man, yes, I said young man, that means I'm old, (laughs) has decided to come in on my edition he is a legend it's known not just in wichita but throughout the world for his dynamic play-by-play calling he's actually called football games for wichita state it sounds kind of long but he is the legendary one and only mike kennedy mike welcome aboard the a train sports talk podcast if i may say all aboard well thank you and after that lead-in there's no way to live up to that introduction but i'll do my best to at least contribute and congratulations on hitting this milestone it's outstanding yeah it is i mean 
to think about 200 when I started this. I can give the little background. I started. I was working at KGSO radio station as a board operator. Ran to a guy named Rick Thomas, and then COVID set in. But we'd always talked about starting a podcast. Well, when COVID set in and everything shut down, I'm at home bored. I said, "Well, you know, let me just try this this podcast thing." And then your good buddy Scott, he was at KGSO at the time. I would call it to him. He said, "Who does a podcast for only 15 minutes?" So, <laughs> but I've been grateful and blessed to have people like you on my show so you know a lot has happened since the last time we talked and that seemed like years ago and it's only been a short time but we've seen the landscape of wichita state athletics from basketball to the changing of the guard for our athletic director we've seen the ups and downs of the basketball program uh but i will still say this even though they had a down season this past season they still was one game at least above 500. What is your outlook on Wichita State basketball with the turnover in players? Because secretly, I'll say we're looking at a possible 20-plus win season. But what's your take on that? You know, I hate to get too bold in in predictions simply because it's such a new roster. And I, you know, I only know these new guys by reputation and statistics. I haven't seen them play yet. But uh, but I'm enthusiastic about the possibilities uh, just to be as honest as I can be. And this is not a this is not a slam on anybody individually at all. But uh, but last year, Wichita State. Uh, there was a perception out there early on, I think, that this was such a talented team. You'd see those comments on social media about how talented this team is. And it really was was under-talented, if you will, at the highest levels of the American Conference. They were just outmatched, out-talented by two or three of the best teams in the conference. And so uh, there was a need for a talent upgrade. I, I think the coaching staff has addressed this. I know people were alarmed at, a, at the amount of turnover, the number of players that left. But when you look at the players that they have brought in and what they have already done at the division one level, I think it's uh, at least very encouraging. I think, uh, as you said, certainly there is the potential there for 20 or more wins again. It's just, it's so hard to say. And this climate that we're in now in college athletics. Absolutely. And, and the reason I went on record and said 20 plus wins is because when you look at turnover rate, you, the first thing you think of is how long will it take for this team to jail? What else is going on in the conference? But at the same time, I also say 20 wins because this is a team that could quite possibly fly under the radar because of the fact you're thinking they have to have time to jail and it's a new roster key factor is you have some players Kenny Poto Craig Porter and that's what you're going to hang your hat on as being the leaders on this team now with all that being said what position is Isaac Brown in because of the fact that now my personal feeling is you may feel feel to differentiate from what I'm getting ready to say but does it seem like with the new athletic director coming in, now he has to prove himself to the athletic director because with every changing of the guard, we have to always remember that the coach that's on board right now is not that athletic director's choice of coach. And he may have one in mind in case the coach doesn't succeed. So 
What position does this put Isaac Brown in as far as coaching and recruiting? Well, I, I think it's kind of like what you stated. Uh, he's going to have to prove himself kind of all over again. But I think, you know, in this particular situation, that's kind of true with a lot of the fan base as well as the new AD and, and so forth. And I think I think he understands that and realizes it. Uh, he's been in a unique position all the way through. I mean, the very first year, he became sort of a last-minute interim head coach, had a really outstanding year, won a conference title, went to the NCAA. And then this past year with higher expectations, I think, uh, the team did not perform as well. And so there was a lot of negative feedback. And so, uh, you know, I think he, he realizes, even if there had not been a change in the AD's office, that there was something to prove this year. And, uh, you know, I think he's, like I say, they set out to upgrade the roster, make it a more talented roster. Uh, all of those things were in their mind anyway. And, and I'm sure he's, he's been around college basketball for a long time. Uh, he's been with different head coaches in different situations. So I think he certainly gets it, certainly understands that, uh, you know, he's going to be evaluated by this new AD and, and has to prove himself. And I don't, I don't think that he'll back off from that at all. Absolutely. So let's go on record. How many years has it been since you've been the voice for Wichita State? This coming year will be my 43rd as the full-time play-by-play broadcaster. There were four years before that that I did a handful of games uh, when it was uh, under the auspices of Cake Radio and TV. Uh, I did the games on radio when they were televised, which was six or eight games a year. But full-time, this will be my, my 43rd year. And I have to ask this, what is it that keeps you going? Because I haven't seen the Energizer Bunny commercial, so I'm going to take it that that battery has died. So you got more energy than the Energizer Bunny. What keeps you going? It's fun. Um, it, it's just really a fun thing to do. It's a fun job. Uh, I look forward to it every day. And, uh, you know, I think doing what I do helps keep me young. I enjoy being around young people that age. That helps uh, keep me going and keep me young. Um, so I, I think that's the main thing. It's, uh, you know, there's some things, some of the travel and stuff's a little more tiring than it used to be when I was younger. But for the most part, my my energy is still good. My health is good. My enthusiasm is as high as it ever was. And so, um, you know, I, I really look forward to doing it again. Absolutely. So you've been around for quite a long time. So you've seen coaches, you have seen players, you have probably can evaluate in your sleep. So if you had to come up with a Mount Rushmore for a basketball team, who would be on your Mount Rushmore? And I know that's kind of a tight spot to put you in, but you've seen it all. You know it all. So I'm pretty sure that what you say, we could take it to the bank. Now, this is Wichita State you're talking about. Wichita State basketball. Well, uh, certainly Dave Stallworth. Xavier McDaniel, Antoine Carr, um, Fred Van Vliet at point guard, I think is the best ever that ever played here. I felt like he was when he was here, and then he's gone on to even, uh, you know, go beyond that with what he's done in the NBA. Um, 
those would be Warren, Warren Armstrong, who became Warren Jabali. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe is not as well remembered as he should be for as great a player as he was. So that would be the, uh, and then I never actually saw him play in person uh, other than on that game or two when he was with the Wichita Vickers right at the end of his career. But, but Cleo Littleton got it all started was the first, you know, really great contemporary player at Wichita state. So those, at least those names would be high up on that, that Mount Rushmore for me. Okay. Now I'm going to see if this is a tough one for you. Of course, I don't think anything is tough for you. Wichita State football. We don't ever want to forget Wichita State football. And what's the question? Mount Rushmore for Wichita Ah, State football. Um, Certainly Linwood Sexton, uh, who, of course, was right after World War II, but uh, was their first great player at what's now the Division I level. They had joined the Missouri Valley Conference right after World War II. He was a great player for them. Uh, Ted Dean was one of the first players I saw. I don't know if that's a name that's very well remembered either. He was from Pennsylvania. He played here in the late 50s, 57, 8, and 9. He was the rookie of the year in the NFL with the Philadelphia Eagles in 1960 and scored the winning touchdown in the championship game against the Packers. And then he, he was hurt after that. He really had a fairly short NFL career, but a great running back. Uh, Hank Schiestel is a personal friend of mine, had a tremendous year in 1963. The senior quarterback was up among the national leaders in several categories. And Bob Long, who had been a backup basketball player and had never played football, broke all the receiving records, went on to play for some of the Packers' great championship teams. So uh, from earlier years, certainly those that would be, would be some that were up there. Um, Jim Waskevich was a lineman, linebacker from Wichita East, who went on to play several years in the AFL and NFL. Uh, and then, you know, during the years that I broadcast, certainly Prince McJunkins at quarterback and yes. Jumpy Gathers at defensive tackle, um, you know, were some of the, you know, the great players of the, the last era of Shocker football. And you mentioned Jumpy Gathers. And what's so unique about him, I believe that he was the last Wichita State football player to play in the NFL on record that I can recall. And he had a long career in the NFL, as a matter of fact. I think he played at least well over 10 years. So that still speak volumes. And the fact of this right here, when you look at records in the NCAA record book of longest field goals, with or without the T, there is still the name Joe Williams. So that means we have some history in the history books that can't be erased. And then this piece of history right here, Wichita State, the first school to hire an African-American to head coach their football team. So there are some things that just can't be erased. So those are some points right there and your comments on that. Well, you know, that's that's something that they were actually um, sort of leaders in, even going way, way back farther. Uh, I did... Uh, one year, my when my wife was the uh, CEO of the Alumni Association, she put together a, an all all years football reunion, and we put together a video. And one of the things I discovered in doing that research, in the late 1920s, 1927, 28, right in there, they had a couple of African American football players when nobody did. Almost no all white universities had black players at that time. I mentioned Linwood Sexton. He was the uh, 
the first at least prominent African-American athlete in the Missouri Valley Conference. And uh, so they were they were always kind of a leader in that area. When Cleo Littleton played basketball here, uh, you know, there were a couple of places that they were uh, not going to let him play. The first year Houston was in the league, they said he couldn't come to Houston. So the Valley got proactive and made Houston play two games in Wichita. And after that, they said, OK, he can come because we don't want to have to play road games every year so uh, wichita state you know even before hiring willie jeffries uh had made a lot of inroads in uh in granting opportunities for african-american athletes i think that's something that they should always be really proud of so basically with what you just said there is some history that should actually go tie in with black history month so wichita state would say kudos to that well, absolutely. That, yeah, absolutely. I would say that's true. Absolutely. So now here, here's what I want to do. I'm going to kind of shift a little bit. We're still talking Wichita State, but TBT Wichita State. How how vested are you in, you know, paying attention to that? Because this will actually be their third year plan because one year COVID interrupted things. And I've seen some of the news on Twitter and I want to get your take. And if you can't give me a take, that's fine, too. I understand. But the original coach of TBT team, and I think he was one of the founding members of it, was one Karan Bradley, who had a nice career plan at Wichita State. And there hasn't been much said as to why he hasn't returned. Well, if you're on the Twitter board, you see it. But is there any controversy behind the reason of, reasoning of him not being asked to come back and why they've gone in the direction they've gone. Of course, I'm going to still pay attention to TBT. I'm just wondering if maybe you have any insight and if you care to share that, feel free. If there's reasons that won't allow you, then I also understand that as well, too. But I thought he was a good fix when he was on board the first time around. You know, I have none as far as insight into any of that. Um, I mean, he lives in Houston, and so I always just figured that might have something to do with it. It's kind of long distance for him to be organizing anything up here. I think maybe he's expanded some of the things that he's doing down there. It may just be busier. Now, there may be more to it than that, but if there is, I, I truly don't know. Uh, but obviously, yeah, it was a, a Wichita State guy and uh, it has always been, uh, he's come back every once in a while for games and so forth. It's always been, you know, very supportive of the program. And so, um, you know, if there is controversy of some type, that's too bad because uh, he's a great guy. And, uh, but it's not anything that I'm aware of now. Okay. So do you expect big things from this current roster coming up as far as the TBT? Because the one thing Wichita can say, and even I heard on a talk show, they was talking about the TBT. They say Wichita State people, they really support TBT. They, are, they have the best crowd out of all the teams in the tournament. Is there a possibility we can get that championship game in Wichita if they really want to draw the big money? Well, I think the only other place that it does, and I haven't compared the numbers, I think the only other place it does as well or close to it is in Dayton where they have the finals now. And uh, that's another city like this one that just loves college basketball. 
that's why they've been able to keep that those first four games there in the NCAA tournament every year, because uh, whether there's a local team of interest or not, the Dayton people really get out and support those games and turn out well for that. So uh, I don't know, but, but I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that Wichita State could be considered for something like that. Uh, but, but Dayton has also supported it well when it's gotten to that level. One thing that's kind of interesting, I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, this year they've added an extra step to the, uh, the regional sites. And so instead of going to Dayton for the quarterfinal round, like the winner here will stay here and play a, uh, a quarterfinal round game here and just the the semifinalists go to Dayton for the semifinals and finals. So they've actually, and I think it has to do a lot with uh, the kind of crowds they've drawn here in Wichita that, uh, that they feel like that level of game, you know, especially if the, if the aftershocks are still in it, will draw more people here than those same teams might in Dayton for a, a quarterfinal round game. All right. Well, in closing, like I said, you've been around a while. And I'm pretty sure there are some people that have probably sat up under you. If there was someone that wanted to be the next Mike Candy, or and I'm pretty sure you would tell them to be the next themselves. But if someone wanted to break into the business and follow in the trail that you have blazed, what would your words of advice be to them? Well, any young people that have ever talked to me about doing what I do, uh, I tell them, you know, what I do is basically a, it's a skill. It's a, uh, you know, a set of tools, if you will. And it's just something that you have to develop by doing. There's not, there's not a lot you can read that's going to teach you how to do it. Uh, it's not like there's a handbook. It's, it's something that you just have to develop over time by doing. Even doing something like you're doing with this podcast, I'm sure you found that the more you do it, the more you get a feel for what works, how to do it, how to put together questions, and that sort of thing. And it's the same way with, with doing play-by-play. I just got a, uh, an email from a friend who has a 13-year-old son. He said he has started doing play-by-play uh, watching games on TV and wanted to know if he could come up and sit in with me sometime at a baseball game and just see how I kind of do things. And I said, of course, but that's kind of how I started. Uh, I actually did uh, when I played games all by myself in my backyard when I was a kid, I'd do play-by-play. And then, you know, watching games on TV, turn the sound down, anything you can do to practice it. And there are, you know, some opportunities now because of all the stuff that's online and so forth. There, there are more opportunities doing that than there used to be. So uh, that, would be my, that would be my thought. Learn, learn the sports, learn the, the, the technical stuff about each sport as much as you can. Know the rules, know who the players are, but, but find a way to practice it practice doing it, learning to use the terminology, all that sort of thing, uh, That's that would be my best advice. And trust me, I actually wanted to do what you were doing. I, I used to do the same thing as a kid. I would look at the TV and turn the volume down and be like, oh, and he just dropped the, well, they weren't using terms like, he dropped a dime of a pass. But I would say, what a great assist to such and such. And I'm like, I'm going to be like you one day. Well, the closest <laughs> I can get, I'm podcasting. So I want to thank you once again for the time that you took out to do this. Much appreciated. And hopefully we can hook up again sometime during one of the seasons, basketball, and get some insight on what you, how you think the season is going. But once again, I want to thank you again, my guest on board the A-Train, 
the legendary Mike Kennedy. Thanks again, sir. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity and uh, keep me in mind for the 300. I will do that. <laughs> Once again, Mike Kennedy, my guest on the A Train Sports Talk podcast. Always great to reach out to him. Such an humble man. Steps down off of the level that I put him on and come down to common ground. Once again, my good friend, Mike Kennedy. Well, <clears throat> stay tuned. I do have some more to come. We have some more guests lined up for this, my 200th episode, which I am glad to still be around doing this. So just stay put and I'll be back with some more news and another guest. is the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast, your host and conductor, episode number 200. I've had one guest on. I'm not going to reveal his name until I get into the interview with the second guest. The second guest is known for golfing, known for using phrases such as hay rates and other adjectives and adverbs to describe people, but he's well known for his what's called Sports Files with Styles. Welcome aboard the A-Train. It is Scott Styles. Thank you, Anthony. Congratulations on the 200 show. Man, I'm so elated to have you on here. This has been years in the making. As I shared with my first guest, you were one of the ones that called me out while you was on air and said, who does a podcast in 15 minutes? <laughs> and I've, I've had to grow and put my big boy pants on since then. But man, this has been years in the making trying to get you on here. If I can describe how getting you on has been, it's been as difficult as the defensive lineman chasing down Barry Sanders. But yeah, I hear you. the reason I'm so happy to have you on here even more so because I know that you have gone through a lot. I can just come in and lead in like this. You are a living testimony. You are an inspiration. And that makes this day even more blessed and more momentous to have such a great outstanding man on like you. Scott, how are you doing? Well, I appreciate it, Anthony. You know, yeah, there was a time where uh, we didn't know if we'd even be here today. And, uh, you know, just uh, uh, Shani and I uh, had a lot of great friends and and, and uh, uh, people that just really supported us. and. We just relied on our faith and everything, and uh, by the grace of God, I think we're going to be okay. And uh, I go back to Mayo Clinic uh, July 27th for another scan and possibly another biopsy, but I, I think we're going to be pretty good. Absolutely. One of the things I want to talk about, and I'll probably be all over the board here. I don't have no notes, but uh, one of the things I want to talk about, because it's always refreshing to hear your voice on the radio, and I noticed this before the second year I've heard it, because the first time I was working at JR Custom and the guy actually had his radio on 
what was it like during the Wichita Open and to have your voice heard again on the radio, along with such people yeah. like Mike Kennedy? You know, it's great working with Mike and Jay Dilling. You know, they've been doing it for 33 years. And just to get asked to be, a, you know, a, uh, to work with them is really an honor. And, and uh, you know, just the privilege of walking, it's about 7.2 miles a day in the heat. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a uh, fun job, but it's a job that you really, I mean, Shannon and I, for months prior to that, walked two miles a day at 5.30 in the morning, just kind of get ready for that event because I know what a grind it is. And uh, just the, the blessing, the privilege to watch those guys. Those guys are so good. And yet, you know, they're still not on the top tour of the PGA. You know, they're still grinding, trying to make it. And uh, But uh, just to be able to be, you know, feet away from these guys and watch them hit shot after shot and the conversations with the caddies and, and being able to relay that back to the listeners and to Jay and, and uh Mike, because, you know, they're stationed at eight on hole 18. So they're relying on us to paint a picture for 17 holes until they come down uh, the 18th fairway where they can you know visually see them as well and then kind of get their own description of what they've seen on 18. So, um, you know, you kind of summarize the day, the highs and lows of the round. You kind of give little details here and there. And, uh, you know, like I said, you got you to gotta paint a picture for the listener because golf is really uh, not an easy thing to describe at times. Uh, you got to put a little bit into it to make sure the uh, listener can actually get a visual of what's going on. And I must say, the two years I've heard you on there, because I actually, when I know that's coming up, I'm like, I get to finally hear Scott's voice on the radio. You know, <laughs> it's like I have to wait once a year now to hear it, whereas I used to hear it every day. So, you know, that's, right. it's kind of a letdown, but it's also a good build up too. But in describing golf, I heard a national commentator say it like, no, I take this back. I think it was during the Wichita Open. They said, you wonder what you're going to talk about because golf is not one of those fast-moving sports, but you have individuals out there that have stories that you can tell that fills the gap when you're not having nothing to talk about. So is that a true assessment? It is a true assessment. And also, I would always find that I had a great dialogue. I would get out there early and meet my group for the day and the caddies, and the caddies and I really, really would uh, – have a great interaction and be able to communicate with me what's going on, what the club they're using. They'll give you a hand signal. And in between shots, you know, as you're walking, sometimes they'll ask uh, questions where the leader's at because there's not a leaderboard on every hole or, you know, what, what's the leader up to, that sort of thing. And then also, like, uh, um, you know, Friday uh, was cut day, you know, and there's a guy named Diaz. Uh, whose wife and little baby were falling down you know, throughout the day. And she came up to me on hole 15 or 14. It was, I said, uh, excuse me, sir, what is, what's the cut? And he was at three under and I said, it's at four. And she wheeled around and ripped something off to him in Spanish. And I'll be darned if he just went, he went birdie birdie and made the cut by one. So, you know, just little stories like that where, you know, she gave him a little inspiration saying, I'm here for the weekend. You better you know, make the cut. We need a check. And he did. And actually he had a hell of a run on, on that Sunday, he went to eight or nine under and ended up like at the top 10. He went to, to 15 or 16 under for the weekend. So, uh, so it's just, you know, you go from one, you know, one shot of missing the whole tournament to actually cashing out and getting and, and recording the top 10 finish. So that's pretty special. So, but just little stories like that, that, you know, people behind the ropes can't usually hear or see and that sort of thing. So that, that's my job to, um, to, um, forward those details of those conversations to, you know, kind of make it a little more interesting to listen. Absolutely. Now, one of the things that caught my attention was when I seen you guys 
last week doing a live presentation. Like I said, I'm going to probably be all over the board here. But I caught you on Facebook Live last week with those hay rates. <laughs> <laughs> I have to throw that out there because those are words that are synonymous with Scott Styles. okay? So what was it like doing that? I want to call it the original pit crew. You guys are the originals. I remember you guys at that radio station and you lost 30 minutes of your life that you couldn't get back. And oh. it took a non-radio guy to finally ask a question that made sense. So what was it like having you guys back together and what can we expect more of this show? Well, we're on every Thursday night from five to six on Facebook live. Uh, you get on my Facebook page, Scott style, Scott Shannon styles, or, uh, you know, you can get on round the track, uh, radio show. I listen to that every Thursday night, Warren, I and C Ray Hall, you know, Warren's been announcing races for almost 40 years. This is my 16th year out here. I did some things, uh, back home. And then also in Florida, uh, I, I did some ESPN and, uh, some, uh, dirt car national stuff down with NASCAR down in Florida for about a year. And, uh, it was just a great experience for me to meet all those guys. I still have connections with some of those guys. And uh, it's uh, it's great to hear from them once in a while. When I when I got sick, uh, it was unreal. Some of the people you never thought you'd hear from that reached out and said, if you need anything or if you, you know, whatever you need, we're there. And uh, so it was it was a true blessing because, you know, you don't expect that from some of those people that you know, have the world by the tail and they have so much more going on in their lives than you know, little me, they don't have, you know, they shouldn't have to worry about that, but they did. And that meant a lot to myself and to Shani. And, and, um, actually, uh, I'm going to be a little selfish here, but Shannon and I are starting a podcast probably next month. And we, uh, named it Mulligans and Mulligans is a golf term that when you get a second chance, if you hit a bad shot and we're going to talk to uh, world leaders, we're going to talk to uh, national prominent people, motivators, uh, athletes, all over the United States and all over the world. Uh, we're getting our guests lined up now, and it's going to be about second opportunities of maybe their hard times and how they rebounded and how they strive for their successes. But it's going to be called Mulligans, so it'll be interesting. Well, I'll be looking forward to listening at this podcast because I, I've been one of the ones I've been saying for the longest. Y'all need to do a podcast. I need to do a podcast. And I guess everything is all about timing. So now that you guys are finally going to do one, I finally yeah. have something else to put on my playlist. Uh, we, just, we have a, we have a studio. We have we had the microphones and all the equipment we just delivered this past week, and Andy Hoosier uh, is going to produce it for us. Uh, we're going to have it every. And the show's going to be every other week. Andy Hoosier will produce it for us and send it out to all the uh, viewing outlets. So uh, we're excited about that. As you would say, outstanding. Yes, I took some of your vocabulary. <laughs> now, I want to roll back a little bit. <clears throat> Because you were one of the finalists to be, I guess they call it the, the PA voice of the Shockers. And I guess it was a tight battle. And then I guess you end up being the PA voice of Sunrise Christian Academy. Of course, right. I would say that's not a bad step down when you know the history of Sunrise Christian Academy. And the no. they produce year in and year out. And to be linked with such an outstanding man like a coach uh, uh oh luke barnwell did i get that right yep yep luke's, luke's a great man he just actually was over in israel for two or three weeks with dr lindstadt uh, who who owns sunrise runs sunrise christian academy and you know uh, luke does almost not only as a coach but he's a great mentor to those kids and, 
and bringing God to the forefront for some of those kids' lives. You know, he gets these kids from all over the world. And he's got another great, outstanding class getting ready to come in, and they should be ranked number one or number two again this season. I know they're looking at raising money right now. Uh, they're going to be building a 1,500, 1,600-seat gymnasium attached with an auditorium so people, more people can come out and watch it other games and uh but uh, yeah so no i i was one of the finalists for the shocker thing and you know we it was during the covid times so we had to retry out three or four times it just got to be a mess and, and quite frankly i think they already had their mind made up before we even did it because of the ties with uh you know the shocker network and and ky which is fine with me um you know when i left kgso and all that they actually did me a favor because i was really getting burnt out and and I just didn't like the direction that that station was really going at the time. And and uh, uh, it was just time for a change. It was time for me to kind of mentally, I was, I was getting mentally shut down and everything else. And it was just time for me to kind of regroup and prioritize what was important for my wife and I. Absolutely. And, and you brought the name KGSO up. And that's where we pretty much cut our teeth. And yep, yep. That, you sure did. You, know, you, you were a great operator there. Yep. And uh, I'm very grateful for the time that I did get to spend there. Still got a key. Don't tell nobody. <laughs> oh, me too. Yeah, they, they never take your keys away. Yeah. But, but uh, one, one of the things we also have connections to is Hutchinson Community College. And the crazy part is we're, I'm 54 and you're probably close behind, which means we were at Hutch around about the same time. And when you look back on those times and you look at, what Hutch has become now, nice stadium, decent football team. Now they're in the rankings now, nationally known. Do you ever stop and think, why come Hutch couldn't have been that back then when we were there as opposed to what they are now? Well, I just don't think the resources were there at the time. You know, at the time I played there, you know, I came from Ohio. I signed with Iowa State. The assistant coach at Iowa State took the head job at Hutch Juco like eight or nine weeks before I was supposed to report to Iowa State. And he called me and said, hey, I need a quarterback. And so my dad and I, we, we uh, they flew me out, and I liked it, and I signed with them. And, and the facilities weren't great, but it was an opportunity to play right away and get re-recruited, so I, I appreciated that. And I have great fond memories. I've been associated with that school, either playing, coaching, or announcing there for as almost 30, 35 years and involved in that conference. And uh, it's a great conference, one of the top conferences in the nation. And, you know, Hutchinson uh, Community College just won the national championship two years ago. For the first time ever and they were so close uh knocking on the door in the past where they just couldn't get over the hump you know and you got butler you got coffeeville you know you got, you got a lot of great schools and now they've added some of the iowa schools and it's just a great competitive um uh league that's a, a lot of uh, sec schools big 12 schools you know they tap into that to fill a spot right away bill snyder built k-state you know when he uh first took over the job at K-State, he built that school with uh, with uh, junior college right, kids right. to try to win right away. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, that's still precedent today that uh, K-State still, you know, Butler's a feeding school for them. And Hutch is a feeding school for them. And, um, you know, they, they recruit a lot of kids out of there for some of their key spots that they need to fill right away and not lose. A, I don't say lose a step, but, you know, it's a lot different when you have to get a guy with two to three years under his belt compared to an incoming freshman. They're going to be wide-eyed a little bit. The speed of the game is different. The physicality of the game is different. The quarters are longer. Uh, the half times are longer. Uh, it's, there's just so many things different. It's more of a job. You know, where high school, you play 
you know, you go out afterwards, you play grab ass, you don't worry about if you lost or not. not. You don't worry about where you're going to get something to eat. If your girlfriend still likes you and that sort of thing in college, it's a whole different animal. And, and most most uh, most of the colleges today are, are uh, you know, a grooming process for the NFL, for the guys who want to go to the NFL. That's why the Alabamas, the Ohio States, Georgias, those schools never slip because they get the best of the best and it's a breeding ground for the NFL. And you mentioned that the college game is totally different, especially from a mental aspect, as opposed to being in high school. And especially when you go in, you got the transfer portal. It seems it seems to be an ever never-ending revolving door. Oh, and to add more to it, you have the NIL. So now college football has become a business entity now. I am. Um... I'm so glad I'm not a coach today. And I, I've talked to Sean Snyder, who's a dear friend of mine, several times. And, you know, it's Bill Snyder's um, son, who's just kind of a roam in the country right now. I know he was in uh, Alabama a few weeks ago doing some consulting with Nick Saban on their special teams. And he's just going around and doing some consulting work right now, trying to land that next job after he got let go at USC. But anyways, um, there is um, a, a process that's taken place where the NCAA has ruined college football in my opinion you have kids now making more money than assistant coaches um you have you have quarterbacks making you know five six eight hundred thousand almost a million dollars a year what about the linemen that are going to protect your butt every play what are you doing for them it's just you're you're, you're there's no loyalty anymore um i'm going to the basketball side real quick but eric Stevenson, who used to play for wichita state went to wichita state to washington to south carolina now he's going to west virginia He's going to four schools in four years, and, and uh, there's there's no loyalty. You can't build a team. That's why Jay Wright got out. I, I still think that's why Coach K and, and Roy Williams stepped down early, yeah. and you're going to see that coach is going to get burned out, and basically you're rebuilding your team every year, and it's just not good for college athletics. Absolutely. We're not teaching the kids anything. Right, and what do you think all this stemmed from now? I know someone said you know, Band of Brothers when they were at UCLA, and their names splashed on the NCAA whatever year that was. But some people say, well, the coaches can get up and leave when they want to and go to this school. Why can't the players do it? And now this is what we're left with. And then you have an NCAA president, Mark Emmert, who goes on record and says, basically, he's getting ready to step down. And if you can find his replacement sooner, that would be more better. And it sounds as if he's saying, you know, let the next guy fix this problem. Am I right yeah, in assessing that? Yeah, he's getting the hell out while he can, and I don't blame him. I mean, but he's part of the problem. He he helped create this mess, you know. And, and you had you had the government step in for a while, Congress. It's just it's just become it's it's come become no pun intended with your show. But it's come become the runaway train, and uh, it's, uh, it's I, I I don't know if anybody can get that back. I don't know if you can reel this back in because now the kids are getting the money. You know, scholarships used to be a big deal. I mean. I mean, when, when I was told I had a full ride scholarship, oh, my, my mom and dad did, did happy dance. Well, now players are going, well, how much am I making a year? You know, am I getting the four or $500,000 deal or what am I, what's my name, image, and likeness going to be here? You know, what's, what's my contract going to be? You know, you give my mom, my grandmother a new car or it's just, there's just a lot of negotiation going on and, and kids are narrowing down their schools not towards the best facilities, the best school that's going to fit their needs. They're going for the best offer. Exactly. And our, 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 um, our, you know, our, our um, goals and ideas have changed. You know, our ethics have changed. And it's just, it's not good. And right. Don't get me wrong. I'm a big college football fan. I'm a big NFL fan. 
but you know, you might as well take college football off the table because it's really not college football anymore because it's not amateur athletics. They're all getting paid now. Right. And, you know, there was a big fuss made when Nick Saban called out uh, Jimbo Fisher, but he also picked on Deion Sanders. Yeah. Deion Sanders basically basically said this in a nutshell. He said he wasn't talking to me. He wasn't talking to Jimbo. He was talking to those Alabama people. He was talking to those boosters. Because if you stop and think about it, it kind of makes sense. Texas A&M, they're in what state? Texas. How many billionaires? They have what, 38 billionaires in the state of Texas? So they got yeah. resources. Then there's Alabama. So even though Nick Saban called them out, do you think Deion Sanders was right in his assessment of who Nick Saban was really talking to? Yeah, you know, uh, um, Jimbo Fisher lost his ever-living mind when, when you know, he, he, he pretty much called Nick Saban everything in the book, if you read between the lines. And yeah. Deion was trying to play it cool, and, and I know Deion was a little upset as well. The bottom line is this, Nick Saban has no reason to throw darts at anybody else because I'm sure they've done it done some things in the past as well they they i know they're a great football team he's a great coach but um it's hard to maintain that high level and he's been able to do that ever since he stepped foot on the campus of alabama and uh you know they not they've not uh, won every national championship but they've been pretty damn close and uh i just uh i don't know what it is anthony i i that's like you know schools fleeing the big 12 going to the sec well let me tell you something. Bob Bowlesby, who used to be the commissioner for the Big 12, he just stepped down. He, It's all his fault. The Big 12 is is where they're at today. He allowed Texas to have their own network. Therefore, the Big 12 could not have their own network where they could divide all the monies up between all the schools, like the Big 10, the SEC. The Big 10, Rutgers, who sucks in college football, Maryland, those schools, they shared the same amount. They got the same check as Michigan and Ohio State, Penn State, Michigan State, and all those guys, Iowa, Wisconsin. They got the same check as Rutgers got because um, of the Big Ten Network. They got $10.78 million, almost $11 million just from football revenue for, from the Big Ten Network. Big 12, no money because there's no network. So, that, you know, there's additional revenue going into their programs, athletic programs, that the Big 12 is missing out on because Texas had took the network. Huge mistake. And that's why teams are start, were fleeing you know, to the school where they could get that extra revenue or to a league where they can get that extra revenue. So what is the landscape of the Big 12 going to be moving forward? Because now there is a report out basically saying, oh, you in Texas won't be in the SEC until 2025. Right, which surprised me. I really thought they'd make the leap after this coming year. And they still might. They can change that. But I really thought it was going to take about two years to get things right, recruit the right kids, because they don't have the right kids to play in the SEC right now. And it, it takes time to to develop, get your strategies in line, your philosophies in line, uh, and get everything lined out of how what direction you want to go, and and and, and then go from there. I I think uh, you know the schools coming into the Big Twelve. I believe it's what Cincinnati, Houston, and maybe BYU. Is that just BYU one or two or something like that? I just. Uh, you know, all they do is rob from another great con- American conference. Now, where's that going to leave them? You know, it's just, it's just the rich get richer, and those guys that, you know, are down at the lower level, just you know, it's it's going to affect those conferences. What ESPN is trying to do is have four major conferences and have all these teams, the top tier teams, be in these conferences aligned, and have an East and West in each conference, and then play for 
uh, uh, conference championship, and where that then goes to the Final Four for college football playoff. That's what they're trying to do. So basically, off what you just said, we can hang up the thought of expansion in the college football playoff. I don't see it happening anytime soon. I, I think they've evaluated the last two years. I think, uh, realistically, in my opinion, I think eight teams is the magic number. I really do. You have five power conferences right now. Those five, five, five power conferences and the top three rated teams that aren't involved uh, in, the, in the championship, then you bring those teams into for eight teams, top four seeds, get home field advantage first round, and then you go to neutral sites. That's, that's the way I think it needs to be played out. That, that sounds like Scott needs to be on that board of regents so they can get this <laughs> get her done. Well, let me ask you this question before I let you go. Do you have a, okay. for the for old time's sake, do you have a sports spouse with Styles moment? At, at where? A sports spouse with Styles. Do you have one of those moments for me? Oh, man. Let me think. And it could be any sport. Golf, racing, baseball, anything. Um, boy, you caught me off guard here, Anthony. I don't have a sports files of styles ready for you. My bad. But uh, <laughs> but I I sure did like that series. That was a that was always a fun series and everything. And it was great to have that platform to do that. And I I ran into a guy. You remember Wildman Willie? Wildman Willie. You know what? Next time I get you on, make sure we get Wildman William. We're gonna have a three-way yeah. combo. <laughs> yeah, so he had a guy that would record all of those, and he has like three hours of sports files of styles and stupid interviews that I did over the six years I was I, I did that, and uh, it's it's quite a hoot because it brings back a lot of great memories and, and everything. I I guess one of the one of them was um, oh the it was it was the running back who played for Nebraska and he went to prison and um, um, anyways he 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 hung himself in prison because he knew he was wrong he did a murder or something like that mm-hmm. and and Doug down Doug was a huge Nebraska fan and right and somebody called and said wonder what he's doing now and I said he's probably just hanging around it's a cliche <laughs> <laughs> And uh, oh my God, the lights blew up on the phone. Like, how could you say something like that? It just, it just came out wrong. I don't know. It just came out wrong. But, but uh, yeah. But um, anyways, no, I, I, I appreciate those those times. It, it's uh, got my name out there a little bit and got me some traction with other things that I wanted to do. And I still get stopped to this day. People's come up and say, "Man, I sure do miss you on that show." And, and sort of, it's not the same, and you know, it life goes on. You know, right. you, you know that as well. You know, right? It goes on, and, and I, I appreciate your friendship and you know, all these years, and looking forward to having many more with you. Absolutely, like I say, next time I'll give you like a two weeks heads up, maybe three weeks, I'll have, I'll have a, and I'll, I'll be like, like get that sports up. files ready and get Wildman Willie and Xavier McDaniel on the phone. <laughs> yeah, there we go. I'll have yeah. no problem doing that for you. Well, once again, I want to thank you for hopping on board the A-Train Sports Talk podcast. And uh, there will be more of these to come. I will also be unveiling my new uh, logo. But I want to thank you once again, and I want the audience to give it up for one Mr. Scott Styles. I appreciate it. Thanks again for inviting me on, and uh, happy uh, 200th episode. We'll see you on the other side of the tracks. All right. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you.
Once again, my guest, my good friend, my brother, Scott Styles. Well, what I am going to do right here, I've had Mike Kennedy on, I've had Scott Styles on. I am going to take a break right here, and when I come back, whichever direction the train goes is the direction we all go. So, hold tight. Right back. It is the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast, 200 episode 200 episodes be right back on the other side of the track saying a lot 200 episodes anyway picking up another passenger that some of you are going to be elated to hear this voice he's from columbus from the great state of south carolina good things do come out of south carolina this young man if i may reference him as young was the only player and the first player to lead the nation in both scoring and rebounding he played at Wichita State University where he made his mark and became known as an intimidator, one of the first college players to sport the ball look and have the intimidating look. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome aboard the A-Train Sports Talk podcast, Wichita's favorite, Xavier McDaniel. Hey, how's it going, man? It's going good. It's going good. Just finished up with basketball camp a couple hours ago. And yes, I see you still make those Wichita journeys, always giving back free backpacks. I've seen it on Scott Styles' uh, Facebook page. So you're constantly always giving, and that's much appreciated because we live in a time where everybody's after the almighty dollar and don't mind charging, even if whatever the case is for the people that have to pay this. So we thank you for what you're doing, always giving back to the game of basketball that was good to you and always looking out after the youth. So, as I mentioned in the lead-in, first player, first player to lead the nation in both scoring and rebounding. And at that time, Wichita State was playing some stiff competition just in the valley alone. So who were your, who were some of your stiffest? competitors that you went up with against? Oh, ain't no, ain't no doubt about it. Tulsa, Bradley, Illinois State, Creighton with Big Benoit Benjamin back in the day. Um, those were some of the better teams in the conference at that time. Absolutely. Now, I'll, I want to go on record in saying this is a, I believe this is an actual quote from you because by you being the rebounding force that you were, at six foot seven, two hundred and five pounds, give or take a few. Uh-huh. He was relentless on the boards, and there was a quote that said, "If you were seven foot four, basically taking a shot at Ralph Samson, that you would lead the nation in rebounding every year." Do you remember uh-huh. that quote? Yes, yes, I did. Yeah, 
I do remember that quote. I remember that as if it was yesterday. I I know that uh, I uh, uh, was a little bit bigger than I was seven foot four. Man, I tell you, I might be still playing in the NBA. To be honest, I mean, I would have played a lot more years and stuff. But uh, uh, being at my size and and uh, I knew I had to come a different way every night. I had to come hard. I had to run. A lot of people don't realize a lot of my rebounds came off a second shot where uh, I throw an outlet. And when we take the shot, I will, uh, I will, I will beat, I will beat the bigger guys down floor, uh, down the floor, and I will either get the rebound, dunk it back in, or lay it back up. That's where I, I got a lot of rebounds at in transition. Mm-hmm. Now, your freshman year, you were part of the class, I believe, with Aubrey Sherrod, if I'm correct. And I'm trying to remember if Greg Drowling was part of that group. Yes, Greg Drowling. Uh, it was me, Aubrey, Greg Drowling, and Cedric Phillips. Cedric Phillips. Okay, I remember him. Yeah, we were the four came in, but Cedric left after our sophomore year. Greg right. left after our freshman year, so it became just me and Aubrey. Right, and yeah, Greg did the ultimate no-no. He transferred to the in-state rival that we refer to as K-Who. Right. Right. And the the funny thing, I I seen Greg three weeks ago at his reunion. We just talk and laugh. I never call him Greg. I always call him GD. Right. So uh, I, I looked at his wife and said, boy, you left us, boy. I said, you left us, boy. He transferred on his wife said, he didn't leave for basketball. I said, I know why he left. <laughs> <laughs> we Because even in the NBA, we didn't talk a lot, but we would speak and shake hands. And it was probably the first time since college, since our freshman year, for almost 40 years ago, mm-hmm. 1981. Uh, I think that's 41 years ago to be exact. We played together and go so fast. <laughs> really not have a big conversation. Absolutely. Now, you, you mentioned the NBA, and my, my claim to my conversations every time I look back on that draft class, which also included Patrick Ewing, and that's where I'm right. going to stop at right there. Uh-huh. I think Patrick Ewing owes you his Rookie of the Year award. And the reason I say that, and I believe uh, Wayman Tisdale was in that class as well, too. And here's the reason I say that. If it's all about the body of work, well, I remember Patrick Ewing already having early knee problems. So he didn't play the whole season. As a matter of fact, I think what should have run Rookie of the Year award was when you actually went heads up against Patrick Ewing and tried to dunk on him. So that you were not afraid of anybody. So that trophy should have went to you. And second place runner probably should have been Wayne Tisdale because if you look at the body of work and look at the stats, you had the stats to prove that you deserved that reward. But I think a lot of it came down to politics and marketing. He was in New York. You were in Seattle. Right. I, I, I agree with you. I felt like I should have run rookie of the year because of the body of work that I did. I played 82 games, which is 100% of the game. And he played 50 games, which is about uh, a little over 60, maybe 61% of the game. 
Um, and I just felt like with what I've done, you take 32 of my worst games, uh, and then against his 50 games, I just think I had a better season than he, he did. And, and he doesn't agree with it. But I said, come on, Patrick, you realistic. You know, if somebody plays 82 and you play 50, come on now. But uh, it's what it is. I'm, I'm not mad. I'm not upset. But I still do believe that I was the best player in that draft. Right. And I still believe to this day. Uh, fortunately, I hurt my knee in 88. And then I got traded and then got traded again and then signed as a free agent. I played for like four teams in two years. And mm-hmm. so uh, I think a little bit of what I had going on in the first six or seven years got derailed with the trading and stuff and with me getting a little older and me getting a little bad. But I tell people all the time, I ain't afraid to mention it. Carl Malone had a great, great career. Chris Mullins had a great career. Patrick Ewan had a great career. And they all Hall of Famers. But I still say I was the best player in that draft. I was the, probably poor ready than any of those guys. Yeah. And if you go look at the numbers earlier in my career, it tells. Now, they did have a little bit longevity in me because once I left Seattle, my playing time decreased each year from each team. Mm-hmm. You don't look at that. I went from playing 35 minutes a game in Seattle to 32 minutes a game in Phoenix, then 28 minutes in New York, 28 again in Boston. 26 and 21 minutes I played my last two years in Boston and then 13 and, and about seven minutes a game in, in, in New Jersey. So uh, where they continue to excel and be with the same team, Patrick with New York and Chris Mullins and and um, Golden State and, and Carmelone in Utah. But I still say in that draft, pro-ready, I mm-hmm. think I was ready than anybody in that draft. Absolutely. Now <clears throat> we're still talking NBA. This past this past season, namely the uh, playoffs, there were three uh, guys on one team, the team that you actually played with, the Boston Celtics, uh, Marcus Smart, uh, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown. They pulled off a feat where each player scored twenty plus points. And the first thing I thought about was, well, they did that in the game. But there's only one team that can boast this claim that had three players that averaged 20 points during the whole entire season. That was the Seattle team with Xavier McDaniel, Dale Ellis, and who was was it? Tom Chambers or was it Dan Marley by that time? Tom Chambers. Right. And if anything, if there was any such thing as a super team like they're trying to build nowadays. Seattle had the original super team with three guys averaging 20-plus points a game. Tell me about that well, team. Well, well, when you're talking about, like, we had the three – we were the only trio to score 23 or more points. No one has ever done that. Right. Now, they said that Marcus Smart then was the first to do it. But I know somebody done it because Dan Hitzel and – Keegan Vandewey and Alex Reeves probably did that back in the early 80s. I know me and Tom against the Houston Rockets. I, I can't remember what everybody had, but I know Tom and Dale had 30-something, and I had 20, 28 in a double overtime game. So um, maybe they were just talking about over the last 10 years or so. I don't know. but uh, And then think about the Lakers with Worthy and Magic and Kareem mm-hmm. and Byron Scott. 
I know they had guys who scored at least three people scored at least 20 points. So I think they might have been just talking as, as if within the last 20 years or so. So, And I'm not real sure, but uh, I, a lot of times I say the media today tries to find uh, narratives for these kids. Uh, I don't take nothing away from it. I like what they do. I like the body of work. I may not like all the jump shots that everybody is taking. <laughs> Tell me about it. Nobody in the world can shoot with Clay Thompson and Steph Curry. Right. You just can't. You find me two shooters that can shoot with them every night outside of his brother Seth, and who would be another shooter that can dead I shoot? Mm-hmm. I don't know no other that can just shoot like them. These guys are shooters. They're not like Damian, Lill- Lill- Damian Lillard, who I think is a scorer, not a shooter. Uh, a lot of people throw him in there, but I just I, you don't find many shooters. I mean. I mean, I could compare Dale Ellis and Dale Curry mm-hmm. or Larry Bird with those guys and shoot. But, you know, shooters are, are very special. And when you got them, and then, you know, the NBA, just like all sports and all people, they are copycats. Right. They copycats. Right. So now you're looking for shooters. And now you got the whole league. You even got the center shoot. And right. so I just be glad when a, another big man comes. So we can get back to that grind in basketball, and we may not never get back to it. But if we do, it would be such a pleasant sight to see because to me, that is when basketball was real when you had the guys down low, clogging up the paint, throwing the elbows, having little dust ups. And you know, that that reminds me because there are some stories out about one Xavier McDaniel, and there was one. Well, before I mention his name because you have already denied that claim, but he said because of you, it made him the pro that he is. And that would be the Gary Payton story. So was there really a sleeper hole that took place in practice or not? Because he has not changed his story. Yeah, I seen him. He said, yeah, you did, man. Yeah, you did. <laughs> I said, Gary, I, I didn't do that to you, man. I said, he said, yeah, you did. I said, Gary, why don't I remember that? I do not remember that. Uh, at all. So he said it happened. I just don't remember it. I don't remember it. I don't never remember him, me and him getting into it because I never really asked Gary to do a lot. You know, sometimes rookies can be a little, I ain't doing, I ain't doing nothing. I ain't doing nothing. Cause when I was a rookie, I did things. I didn't want to do it, but it was said that's what rookies do. Right. So if I had to tote the film projector, help the trainer with bags, I, I just did it. But I, I just don't remember that. At all. I mean, he said it happened. I just don't remember. And then I guess in every locker room in the NBA, there's always that one male that has to show that he he's the man. And there was a story that said how you exhibited that you were the man in the locker room, even to the point of where when you got traded to the New York Knicks, first day, uh-huh. the first day, who does Xavier McDaniel get into it with? Anthony Mason. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the late Mason. Uh, that whole thing started because we were scrimmaging, and I had must have blocked about three or four sh- his shots. And I was like, get that crap out of here. Get that crap. I wasn't saying crap. Right. But uh, and I think he took exception to it. 
and we got into it. He kind of stole on me, and I was just coming after it, you know. And uh, Pat Riley was gonna find me because I wasn't trying to let it go. I'm from a neighborhood, yeah, man. They can't hit me and get away with it. Right. But we became good friends, you know. After that, you know. Uh, and I mean, I had a fight with Oak, me and Oak, in the first day of practice. I can see that Pat too. Raleigh, Pat Riley got that on. He he showed that. He said, well, "I'm gonna show you a, a, a film." And the film was me and Oakley fighting together, fighting each other. Mm-hmm. And then he cut it off after the fight was over. With. He said, "Now we fight together." You know, people look past that. Some people do. They look past that. Because uh, there's some guys that, you know, I pretty much, I really, I got a real distaste for. Mm-hmm. You know, I got a real big distaste for Dennis Robert. I just thought he was dirty. The NBA allowed him to get away with that crap. Because mm-hmm. there's no way you can get away with that on the blacktop. You hit somebody in their private, uh, you got to, and they know you did it. I mean, there's a difference when you did it accidental. But when you see someone did it, he did it twice to me in the game, officials didn't call nothing. So what do you do? You, you have to take it in your own hand. I, I, I don't like play. I'm going to play hard. And, and if you talk to anybody, they'll never say, he's going to play hard. He's going to hit the shit out of you. Mm-hmm. But they never call me dirty. Right. I've never been called a dirty player. Right. So, uh, and I just pick hard hits because I'm giving my, I get up. I tell people all the time, I play James Worthy six times while me and him ain't never got into it. Right. You know, I played Mark McGuire while we ain't never got into it. Five times. Or Rodney McCray. It's just certain guys. You're going to get into it. You're going to clean. I mean, I take an elbow, and, and as long as it's accidental, I'm fine. Because I know I'm going to hit somebody with one. Mm-hmm. You know? It's with the intent. And, and I've, I've had that intent where I've knocked some people out, too, with that ball. So. But uh, just some guys I just got real bad distaste for. I don't think we could ever sit in the same room. Right. So with that being said, you mentioned Dennis Rodman. So if you were in the days game, Draymond Green, I'm pretty sure there would be some angst. I'm going to be honest. I think if me and Draymond Green played against each other, it'll be a great game because we both going to battle. I'm not going to fight nobody that's playing hard or somebody who's outplaying me. That has never been an issue. My issue is trying to compete on the same level that he's competing on. But see, this is where guys, this is why guys get into it. See, Dennis Robin, he's supposed to be this great defensive player. And I'm an offensive guy, and I get the best of you, then you get dirty with me. Now you're trying to take my, my game by hitting me in my private or something, mm-hmm. which means I'm probably going to get kicked out of the game, you know? So uh, I don't think I have a problem with Draymond Green. I think he play. I like him. Okay. You know, a lot of people, because he speaks his mind. Okay. Uh, uh, he just, a lot of people don't like him because he speaks his mind, but, I, I mean, I like him. Okay, so here's going to be my final question because we're going on 20 minutes and I don't want to keep uh-huh. you no longer than I have to. But uh-huh. this is going to be like a twofold question. Today's college game and today's NBA game, has it turned soft? In some instance, I, I think, now let me just go to college first. It's not just even the game itself. Who do you know in college basketball right now? Outside a few people, who do you know in college basketball? Nobody. I mean, college basketball, I mean, this is pretty much non-existent to me, really. You know, you don't know no players unless you're watching the McDonald's All-American. I don't know but two people 
Xavier Bell and the other kid from last year, Otto, what's his name? Oh, only two kids. Right. Xavier Bell is one that I know. Uh, but other than that, who do you know in college basketball? You got fans coming to the game wondering who, what 10 or 12 guys going to suit up tonight because they don't know them. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of sad. But the NBA, I mean, it's a, it's the NBA is just about changing. You know, uh, the game is about shooting three-pointers now. So what everybody do is shoot three-pointers. And just to give you a little example, when Magic Johnson came out of, uh, in uh, 79, everybody was looking for the big guard. Everybody. Everybody looking for the big guard. Copycat. The NBA is a, a copycat. Everybody trying to do what everybody else do. And so you're never going to beat the Warriors just trying to outshoot them. They're better shooters than you. Simple as that. It's not a game of luck. Some people like me, if I'm going to shoot a game of 30 with Dale Ellis, I'm going to lose majority of those games. And I did because me and him always was paired up. I lost most of those games. He would be shooting, I'll be shooting 25 out of 30, and most of my shots are like 15 feet and in. He's shooting like 18 to 20 feet, and he's making 27 out of 30. He's a better shooter than me. I, yeah, I may get him one day, but how many days is he going to get me? Right. So the league is a copycat league. I'm not going to say it's soft because these guys make so much money now, and the NBA hit them with one-game suspension and 20 and 30 and 40 and $50,000 fine. I probably would be soft too. Think about it. My biggest fine was $7,500, and that was me and Oak fight. I got a one-game suspension. And that right there cost me like twenty eight thousand dollars for that one for that for the seventy five hundred in the one game it was like twenty eight thousand. I called Ron Thorne and like, man, that's a lot of money, man. And he was like, Xavier, don't get in no more fights. I'll give you the money back. Did he give you the money back? Yes, he gave me the money back. I didn't get in no more fights that year. He gave me my money back. Absolutely. So, and I almost got in one with with, with uh, Clyde Drexler because I got suspended. And we were playing, we were playing Detroit, so I flew to Seattle because I couldn't be to the arena. So I flew to Seattle that day and got back to Seattle, and we were playing Portland in like a, two days, and almost got in with Clyde Drexler. And Ron Thorne called me and said, "Xavier, you about to lose that money?" And I said, "Did you?" He said, "I see what he did. I don't know if he <laughs> find Clyde." But he was he was trying to to get me into it, and the officials knew what he was doing too. And I said, "Y'all know what they're doing. These guys keep doing it until you do something, because they know you just got suspended." Mm-hmm. Uh, Luck, I held my cool enough that I didn't get kicked out or didn't draw any technicals. But uh, I did receive my money one day in the mail. I got a check. I was like, "Oh crap!" He did send me my money. So. All right. But the guys just get fired. So it, 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 just think about it. It, it. it would be tough. So I think I might be soft too. That somebody gonna find me fifty grand. Fifty grand feed a lot of people, man. Well, I, I put this way. I wouldn't call it soft. In today's world, when they say, "Are you working hard?" I say, "No, I'm not working hard. I'm working smart." So basically, what you did was you played smart and got your money back. Right. So that's how that works. Well, X, I want to thank you for taking out the time because this was definitely impromptu. I mean, I could ask a plethora of questions, but that would take a whole nother segment. 
But I want to thank you for joining me, making my 200th episode a grand episode. And we'll have to do this one more time because, there, like I said, there's so much I want to ask you. But thank you All for right. this time. Appreciate number. it. All right. You got my number anytime. All right. Thank you. You ain't got to worry about if I'm going to change it because I had the same number for 25 years. All right, then. That, that sounds like me with this number. So, yeah. Once again, people. Xavier McDaniel on the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. I'll be back to wrap it up after this. Thank you. Once again, Xavier McDaniel. Yes, you heard it. The Xavier McDaniel, the first player to ever lead the nation, college basketball, to lead the nation in college basketball in scoring and rebounding in the same year. Well, I want to thank all of my guests that showed up on the train. Mike Kennedy, Scott Styles, and like I say, Scott has made it so to where I've met a lot of people, and he was basically the, not basically, he was the man that made that possible for me to talk to Xavier McDaniel. So once again, give it up for all those who showed up today. Well, that's going to do it for me, the 200th episode. I can't say how elated I am to have made it this far, and there's going to be more to come. I have X number because there is so much more I want to ask him, but time would not permit. But I've enjoyed this day. I've enjoyed my guests. Those of you who are listening at this podcast, I hope you enjoyed as well. Give me some feedback. I did have a little sports brief moment in there as I was killing time to wait for my guests. It all worked out. This was well worth it. The 200th episode, I'll say like it was worth the wait to get some guests on, especially that one Scott Styles because he used to kid me about making a 15-minute podcast. Well, now, as you can see, this episode is actually running way longer than any 15 minutes, but I had some good people on here, had a little bit of sports brief moment. So, once again, I hope you have enjoyed the ride. Until the next time, take care of yourself, each other. God bless you. And once again, all I can do is say thank you, thank you, thank you for helping me get this far. It's the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. We're bringing the train into the station. Have a nice one.